everybody. As always, it is I, Ryan, host of DM Told Me To, and back with another update. I think we're on episode nine of the updated book series. Um, so do things to talk about today. I'll whip out the notes here because I figured maybe start doing some notes, like a jot down stuff, and have you guys see what what I've worked on throughout the week, and then see the order I'm going to go in. So first, we're going to talk about how um, I remove spells with names and why um, general polymorph spells removed after doing some discussion. Show some art for Shark Egg and Dragon Egg, and then finally end up with going into CR 1 and 2 creatures, because I got those lists done. So, yeah, let's get into it. So, first thing first, um, went through, I finally found a way, thanks to the um, GM Binder Discord for helping out with that. If you guys plan to use this and have not used ever GM Binder, I really do recommend going to them because they've been very helpful with things. Um, I didn't know for the longest time how to auto my page numbers, I had to manually enter them every single time. Now I know on how to do it. So whenever I add a new page, it'll auto-adjust the numbers for everything, and it's great. So if I ever have to go back and fix something, I'm all set with that. As far as other things being fixed, nothing else has been changed or adjusted um, in the rules-wise. I have hinted at the idea of potentially doing it. I mentioned this in the last video. Still think about possibilities of doing it. Um, of some sort of, like, um, Oromon fusion or combining system. I think I might have it be a special spell that will come in a card pack that's filled with just fusions of the favorite creature, right? So I might do that, and that's a unique spell I've added to the game and things like that. Um, I think I might call it Amalgamation is what I'm thinking of calling it. So um, I don't want to rip off too much stuff from like Yu-Gi-Oh! if you know of Yu-Gi-Oh!'s Excel and Yu-Gi-Oh! card game stuff. But I like their whole number concept with combining things, but it's going to be a play on their fusion monsters and the number monsters, right? So... I plan to have it be a spell called like Amalgamation, like I was saying, I, I think. Now don't quote me on that, but um, early, early discussions and things of talking about that. And what that basically entail is you have one of the fusion creatures on the field. And I don't know if I want to have it be called like Oro Stitching, like where you combine the two creatures together. But basically, like you'll take the creature that's out, you will cast a spell Amalgamation, just um, take its component, take like the other creature you have to fuse with it, Stack them on top of each other on the field, and then you need to also have their fusion end result also as a card in your hand, and then you play that on top of those two. Kind of like how, um, if you've ever seen Yu-Gi-Oh! If not, I'll just explain quickly. They have these things called XYZ monsters, or um, number monsters, right? Also called in the show. And what they do is basically you take two cards of the same level, stack them on top of each other, and put their new combined vert, not combined, but their new vert, like a new version on top of those two. But it'll be a play on the fusion component from Yu-Gi-Oh 2, like you take two cards that have to be fused together to make an end result. So what do I mean by this? So I can get a picture here of the um, simple, simple creature. Um, so I can get them here. Of Like this, for example. This is kind of be a lower tier fusion, but there's obviously going to be some strong ones and some weak ones. So this here would be a version of the Dragon-Scorpion amalgamate, or like fusion creature. I don't want to call them fusions because I feel like that's already called fusions when you combine duplicates, right? You take two of the same card, fuse them together, level them up. That's fusions. But I don't want to call them that. I'm thinking of amalgamations and calling them like um A and calling them like A number and then the name of the creature, right? So this could be like A for amalgamation number, etc. So this could be like A number four dra uh, dragon scorpion. Or would, they'd have a name to them. It wouldn't be just called dragon scorpion, right? It might be called like um Drago Scorpio of the Sands, or something like, like a unique name, but it would have the traits of the dragon with the breath attacks, and it would have the traits of the scorpion. Obviously, this would be a lesser one, because it just took the dragon head basically put on a scorpion, but nonetheless, so that would be an option of potentially doing it. Um, 
that's stuff I haven't worked out just yet, and I want to get the basic creatures done too, but if I find art that I can use that are fusions of creatures, I'm snapping them here and there to get stuff for, for potentially a later date, right? So just some stuff with that. All right, so getting into the spells quick. Um, I looked through a lot of um, what I can and can't do as far as um, Dungeons & Dragons and using intellectual property and things like that. So to play it safe, um, they mentioned no spells with names. That they own them, obviously, because they're unique named spells. But obviously, things like Fireball is not a unique. Dungeons & Dragons can't own the name Fireball, right? But the name Adaluk or Tasha's and things like that, they do own that name of that spell. Same thing with the creatures like um, Beholder, Mind Flayer, Carrion Crawler, things like that. So to make it easy for this, I've just chosen to avoid that altogether <laughs> because I don't want to have any problems along the way with using intellectual property, things like that. So to make it simple, if a spell had a person's name in it, it's been removed. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it in a nutshell on why that I did it. Um, just because I don't want to run into any other problems with copyright, things like that becoming an issue because I'd like to not have anything happen. <laughs> so, simply, I removed the spells with the names because I didn't want to run into any issues down the line later. And there is enough spells in the game, believe me. We don't have to worry about those too much. So, next thing being, removal of the spell polymorph in general. Um, if a creed, if an Armon you summon can do it, I... I haven't really found any reason to not allow that. That just makes those creatures more valuable, right? Find a pixie that can cast polymorph. And if you want to have that be a creature on the field and you want to cast on your turn, then okay. That you're making to, that's through your creature that comes with that at baseline, right? But as far as the players having it to themselves, that, nah. Because I didn't want to let them be able to do that at any point, anything. So I made mean, it simple. If you open the creature in a pack or if you did a mission and got the card or however you got the card the creature that knows that more kudos to you you have a cool creature that can do a spell that players can't cast and along with the story right that could simply just be a spell that as oromancers you can't change the oru of other creatures into something else unless you had that other creature as like a middleman right that creature has the power to do it but they have to listen to your command you as an oromancer can't just cast it Right, and that could be a, that, that, and that could be the lore behind it, right? On why that that is the way it is, um, due to the fact that, right, as oromancers, we can't physically change the oral components of other things, but our creatures can, and we can give them the command to do so. And then there's that ability in place there. Um, now I know mystics can change the types of their elements as a, a perk that they unlock later on. But that is changing just an element, right? You're not actually like changing a bear into a T-Rex, for example, right? So that's where that comes in. Uh, so those are done. Next thing being the shark egg and dragon egg. Last night, I finally think I got a good version of... Um, I've been working on dragon egg for a long time. I think I'm going to settle with this drawing by Nicholas Morales on ArtStation, who um, said we can use it as long as we cite him, so I'm very happy for that. But I think I'm going to have this be the... The dragon egg, and we'll get into the dragon egg and the dragon egg fusions and or, um, dragon egg evolutions and things. Um, I have the evolutions uh, for I, I, you can hatch five different dragons from this dragon egg here. So, this is something where if you're watching on YouTube, like I said, the YouTube link will be down below. You can check out the video to see the egg of eggs I'm talking about. But I think I want it to look like this because this looks really good, right? This shows like a dragon egg. Um, I will show their evolutions, like the five different options you can get at a later date. They're all pretty cool there from another artist and then i plan to have um those five you need to level them all up to need to evolve them all get all different five forms and then take all five of those cards 
and then bring them together to make a final form. So that will obviously be one of the stronger creatures in the game. Um, that will be like probably one of the gods of the game, right? I'm picturing like an ode to Tiamat, right? How she was like a multi-headed dragon. I'm thinking of doing that again, but with these variants of the of the little dragons that I got there for the evolutions from this. So yeah, I think that'll be fun. Um, a little little foreshadowing for what's to come, right? Because most people are like, hey, well, what do you got planned? So this is some stuff into what what's going on behind the scenes here, besides what I just generally talk about. So there's that. And if I haven't shown the dragon egg, I can't remember if I did last week, so I'm just going to show it again. The shark egg, excuse me, the shark egg. Da, 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 da. Trying to get it here. Get him here. Let's see. Uh, I sent it on the Discord a few days back. I'm trying to find it there. It's also saved in my in my pictures too but i have found so much art i can use and it has made me quite the happy camper because uh finding art to use is quite hard there it is and uh the egg itself was drawn by Luplumi on iStock, but i gave it the background and stuff and got it here so there will be the shark egg and the shark egg can hatch into one of different four sharks now those sharks would be just the final form the shark egg if you've looked at the monster manual lately as we scroll down here you'll see that under um the first tier, I plan to have the shark egg be an epic because it's going to become four different things. And then for CR 18th, and I might move it. I just wanted to have a second legendary in there for CR 18, and that might be the dragon egg. So it might be a legendary card. And um, so those guys will be hard to get, right? I might make the egg's ability be that every, like, if it's your, if it's your key card, right? Um, I might, because this is, uh, well, dragon egg's the base form. So I actually probably won't have a key card ability now that I think about it. It'll just be a base dragon egg. I don't know. Maybe I should give my own custom editions and whatever ideas you guys think of on Patreon that you want to add um, into the game as creatures. Um, maybe make their base versions have key card abilities because they're special additions that I've added as opposed to the run-of-the-mill basic creatures. But we'll see. Um, I don't know about that. But if I was to give you, to get enough dragon eggs to fuse and evolve it up into a basic dragon form, maybe I'll have each of those dragon forms be able to produce an egg at dawn or something to get the ball rolling because yeah, I realize you have to collect. Let's see. So if you're going to list. Yeah, so for fusions, right? You need to get grand total of one plus two is three, three plus three is six, and then so you need to get 30, 30 legendary dragon egg cards. <laughs> and that's assuming that you get lucky and get the different form of the evolution, right? I haven't figured out yet how I want to have the egg hatch into one of the five. Maybe I'll have the players roll a d6, and if it's six, they get to choose which form it is to make it a little more flexible. Otherwise, and you'd be like, all right, you fused enough dragon eggs together, and now you have to evolve it, roll to see what evolution you get. And if it's one through five, it's one of the five. If it's a six, then you get to choose. So if you get a duplicate, then you get a duplicate. But then you could probably combine those together with other duplicates and things like that. So um, we'll have to see when that comes. But that's dragon egg, right? So that's a few cards to, or a few creatures you get a little insight in on, on what's to come. So there's dragon egg, there's shark egg for you. Um, if you were on the Discord, you saw the Shark Egg Evolutions a long time ago. But um, yeah, so little perks to being on the Discord. And if you're on the Reddit, you get to see some other finished art that was done recently, which is really cool. So yeah, anyway, uh, going back to our list here, right? So we talked about the removed spells. We talked about why I removed Polymorph. We talked about the Shark Egg Dragon. Now time to get into the nitty gritty on this, this episode here. So, oh, CR2. There's so many creatures in CR2. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through them all. <laughs> but there was a lot, to say the least. I think two... And maybe three or four has the most creatures of it in the game, for sure. So, 
getting into it here. CR1 creatures. Alrighty. Do that there. Do this here. There we go. Alright. So, uh, going into it here. So, what makes something a, a common in CR1, right? Um, let me see here. Did the Quagoths become its own? Let me see. Did I accidentally combine Spore Servant? No, I think that's a full thing. Quagoth Spore Servant, yeah. Alright, that one's not on the list. Yep, here's a picture of the Quagoth Spore Spirit here. Ah. You want to work for me? There it is. And is it Quagoth? Quageth? We're going to hear the guy say it quickly. Or girl. Okay, Quagoth Spore Servant is how that she said it there. Sorry, I muted. Alright. So. CR1. Why is that in the commons? Uh, let's see. AC 13. Hit points of 45. Damage is immune to poison. It can't be blinded, charm, frightened, paralyzed, or poison. Um, something no, it can be grappled, it can be prone, so that's what a lot of things do at this this CR here, right? So multi-attack, it makes two claw attacks. So plus five to hit and gets six and it's for a total of on average 12 damage. That's about it. Nothing fancy, nothing special about it. It just makes claw attacks and can't be poisoned. Really not a ton to work with, right? That's not a lot of not a lot of stuff you got there. Let's look at Death Dog quick, right? Death Dog, you see a 12, uh, is advantage on wisdom perception, checks, and saving throws against being blind, a charm, deaf, and etc. Makes two bite attacks. Uh, each bite attack is only plus four and hits for five, so an average of 10 damage. Target is a creature must in DC 12, saving throw against disease or become poisoned until the disease is cured. Every 24, every 24 hours that elapse, the creature must repeat the saving throw, reducing its maximum hit points by five on a failure. Action lasts until the disease is cured. If the creature dies, if the disease reduces it to zero points. So, Something to note about these. Usually when a card is sent to the graveyard, returned to stuff, it probably doesn't... I haven't made an official ruling yet on how I want to do this, but that's why I value you guys' feedback on what I should do here. Um, do you think diseases should carry over after a creature gets knocked out or sent to the graveyard or, like, defeated in battle, right? So, for example, this disease lasts for 24 hours. Should that creature keep having to make those checks and keep doing its thing? Or no, because ultimately it returns back to the card and doesn't get summoned again. The creatures are sentient. They do remember what happens in between their card summons. They do remember you use the caster. They have a bond with you like in Yu-Gi-Oh, right? Or Pokemon, I should say. The difference is, with Pokemon, that creature is always affected, always hurting. So in this, will they always be hurting? That's a good question to ask you guys of how these rulings should be, right? Should I make it so that these creatures in between fights continuously have the same um, effects? Like if it carries over like this. If it's damage as well, I'm thinking I'm making the damage be fully healed in between each one. And that way, because if you've listened to the Pokemon D&D stories, which if you have, amazing, you've heard our great adventures we've had, it became tough for players because they had to go, they were like, I, I have to find Pokemon Center, but we're in the middle of a story. So now I as DM have to think, okay, how can they get healed up? Maybe there's a hot spring, maybe there's somewhere else to heal their Pokemon, etc. And then you have to think outside of the box. With this, or like in Yu-Gi-Oh, if a card gets damaged or destroyed, it's not like gone forever and it doesn't lose hit points equal to that. But this is Dungeons and Dragons, right? So, do the creatures always come out with full health and always stuff? And if that's the case, should they continually be affected by these diseases if they last 24 hours? Or are they just magically fully restored, fully cleaned each time? Now, as players, of course, you're not going to magically be healed because you're always there, right? You're not, you're not returning to a card, not returning to whatever. You're always there. So, 
two good question to um, see what you guys' thoughts are. If you want to leave them down below on this, if you're on YouTube, leave them down in the comments. If you're on other listening platforms, leave them down below. So let me know what your thoughts are, right? Should the, should the creatures continuously be affected by status, like being poisoned here, or should they be fully restored in between card summons? I'm kind of going with the fully restored between card summons because then it's like I can use these things as tools, but they're my buddies and I don't have to worry about them always needing to be full health. So I, I'm kind of leaning towards the... Uh, now, every 24 hours at a lapse, for your key card, that's different because they're always with you, right? And you probably want to keep them out for 24 hours. That's completely different. But if it's a card that you've summoned, gets knocked down, and fight returns to your deck, then at that point, should they be okay and not suffer this penalty? So something to leave down below, please. Let me know what your thoughts are. I always value you guys' feedback. So, all right. So continuing on, right? Otherwise, it bites, diseases. And it's here because I wasn't sure people's thoughts were, right? If, if it's a disease that will carry over, then maybe the death dog's a little better. If it's not, then it'll stay and be what it is. So, continuing on here. Uh, let's see, that was death dog. Uh, Dryad. What, what was special about Dryad? Dryad's a common. 11 health, so already bad. Or, I'm sorry, AC 11. But if you use Bark Skin, it's 16. But that's eating up a turn to do so. So, uh, it only hit points of 22 as well. So... Right, as evangelist, same those against spells. It can speak with beasts and plants. Tree stride once per once on her turn. The druid can use ten feet of her movement to send magically into one living tree within her reach and emerge from a second living tree. Uh, spells and castles entangle. Goodberry bark skin pass without trace. Shillelagh. If it casts Shillelagh, obviously it gets a plus six to hit with its club. Two d four bludgeoning or one d eight with Shillelagh. So <laughs> you can spend a turn to Shillelagh. All right. So I guess the best case scenario with her, right? One day. So I am going to limit effects. I think, I think, and here's where I want to review with you guys too. Then the next question comes, if conditions get removed, do spell slots also? Or do you have the player have to keep track of spell slots? I was thinking if a spell is, is a day per day spell, that you probably should keep track of. If it's spell slots, maybe a little less, right? Unless it's your key card, then it's always out and that's different, right? Because key cards always stay out. They don't refresh, things like that. So... One day each. So one day for one battle, the druid can cast Barkskin, have ACs of 16. Okay. Then next turn, I guess it could cast Shillelagh. Okay, so that's two turns of her being out now. Okay, and then finally on turn three, weapon attack for bludgeoning. Then she has Charm. Dried targets one human or beast, you can see within 30 feet of her. If the target can see, the dried must succeed on DC 14 saving throw or be magically charmed. Charm creature regards the druid as a trusted friend. Uh, to be heated and protected. Although the target isn't under the Dryad's control, it takes the Dryad's request or actions in the most favorable way it can. Each time the Dryad's or its allies do anything harmful to the target, it can repeat the saving throw, ending the effect on itself on a success. Otherwise, the effect lasts for 24 hours or until the Dryad dies. It's on a different plane, etc., etc. Um, so every time that you hurt it, it can make a check. Um, it can repeat the saving throw. Um, ending the effect on a success. So once it ends the effect, it's on a success, right? Um, otherwise, it lasts for 24 hours, so it'll keep happening. Now you gotta realize this isn't a fight, right? It's like in Pokemon where something's a fat you love. It'll miss sometimes, right? In this case, it won't hurt the Dryad. But if anybody ever hits it, which you have to hit them to knock them out anyway, then they make the save, right? Now it's Wisdom. We talked about this before on the stream. There a lot of creatures don't have a lot of wisdom in this game. After looking at a lot of creatures, I can tell you a lot of creatures don't have a lot of wisdom. So basically the problem that made this thing be a common, and you're probably like, Ryan, this build is actually pretty good. So the druid, druid can only target no more than one human or up to three beasts at a time. Okay. But you, something that you'll see, if these are just the commons, 
right? We've stepped up our game from previous creatures we have seen so far. These are just common creatures. The problem with this one is it needs setup, right? You have to do a few more things to actually keep her alive, because if you don't bark skin and you don't shlele, then she only has an AC of 11. A lot of things can hit that. And then hit for 1d8 plus 4 with shillelagh. Okay, one time she gets a plus 2 to hit. And that's with a shillelagh buff of a 1d8 plus 4. So, yes, she's good for crowd control and healing in a way. But ultimately, compared to other things you're going to see here, it's not as good. Um, giant e Like, some of the giants here were pretty common, too. It's like Giant Eagle, for example. AC of 13. Uh, Multi-attack. One with its beak, one with its talons. So, one with its beak, both have plus 5 to hit. The beak is 1d6 plus 3 piercing, and the talons is 2d6. So on average, it's 16 damage a turn with two attacks. Something to note. Um, a good rule of thumb that I made is, if a creature hits a good amount of damage, but has no other effect, it's probably a common or uncommon. Right? So the eagle's got a flying speed of 80 feet. It's a large beast. A player could ride this. Sure. But... It just hits kind of hard. 16 a turn, which is pretty significant at CR1. But that's it. Anyways, these other creatures are going to have other good things about them that bumps them up a tier to why that they are what they are. I'm just going to some another one quick. Um, Aquasit. Is Aquasit on this list? It's not. I think that was a guy I wanted to talk about too. Aquasit. Oh, ha. Yes, this is the little demon for Torva or Tempest if he's watching. Uh, on the stream, we're talking about this little demon guy a lot. Let's hear, let's hear how they say it. Quasit. Quasit. Okay, so the Quasit. Um, AC of 13, hit points of 7. <laughs> hit points of 7 is not very good. Uh, yes, it resists cold, lightning, bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing from non-magical attacks. So, it has resistance, right? So to go over quickly for players again, D&D resistance. Uh, we want the resistance effect, just so I can, just so we can go over damage resistance. Yeah. All right. So if a creature or an object has resistance to a damage or damage type, um, damage of that type is half. Right. So it doesn't like not get hit by it. It just is half. So it'll be half from those and slashing and piercing. But when you have seven hit points, for example, the eagle hit for an on average of sixteen damage. Right. If it rolls on its average for damage, and you take half, you only have seven health. So you're already going down. Uh, so obviously that's why this thing's a common, right? For its health. Now, um, it can frighten things. It can scare things. Okay. It can go invisible. Okay. But ultimately, you got to look at what else it does. While it has advantage on same throws against spells on the magical effects, which is nice, keep the life longer, or resist stuff, it ultimately only has seven hit points. And at the end of the day, for a lot, not all of them, but for a lot of these creatures, raw numbers do matter as far as health, stats, things like that. When, when comparing and contrasting to other creatures. So, uh, like, okay, it can scare a creature, must succeed on a con saving throw, or take poison damage and become poisoned for a minute. One creature the quad is shorter than 20 feet, must succeed on wisdom save or be frightened. Okay. But ultimately, if he gets hit, well, 13 AC, guys, that's not a lot. Seven hit points. That's why he's a con. Uh, okay, so moving up to the uncommons, let's look at something like brown bear. Right? Why is brown bear up here in the commons while like death dog was down below so brown bear ac of 11 hit points of 34 but it makes one bite attack and one with its claws so i know i mentioned raw damage not being super significant but this thing gets a plus five to hit with both 
And on average, it deals 19 damage. On average. That's not even the highs or lows, right? I guess the high, the best damage possible for this bear, 28 damage. Yeah. 28 damage, right? 8 plus 4 is 12. 12 plus 4 is 16. 16 plus 12 is 28 damage. That can take a good hit out of a lot of those common creatures. So, I mean, that's best case scenario. Uh, obviously, the bear, because of its strength and that damage there, I moved it up. You know, now I'm kind of tempted to move brown bear down. See, this is why it's good to talk about you guys with this, just to see how things look and sound. You know, brown bear, I'm going to stay with my guns and just be like, listen, damage you're up here. Damage you should be down lower. So, a lot of stuff got shifted around on me, too, because of how formatting and stuff worked. So, that could be why brown bear maybe was there and not just a common. So, let's see. Next thing, uh, fairy dragons. I don't want to get into fairy dragons, unfortunately, because there's a lot of stuff going on with fairy dragon, young and old. So I, young is, um, for its tier is an uncommon, but old for its tier is a common because, well, the fairy dragon is nice. And if you're watching on camera, you can see me pull down a fairy dragon here. This is auto, but all fairy dragons are nice and fairy dragons are cool. Also, at the end of the day. Not anything to really shake a stick at. They're not the strongest guys. They're not like the, the, the coolest. But uh, let's get into something like Giant Vulture. Why is Giant Vulture an uncommon, but Giant Eagle's a common? Well, Giant Vulture, it only has an AC of 10, it points of 22. What? Pack tactic. Talked about the importance of pack tactics before. If you and three other players are playing this game, that's four people summoning creatures at, at, at a time. Your pack tactics is probably going to go off, which gives you advantage on attack rolls against a creature. If at least one of the vultures allies is within five feet. So you're getting advantage. You make two attacks, one with the speak, one with the talons for an average of 16 damage a turn with advantage with a plus four to hit. Pretty good. All right, pretty good. So that's why that that's there. Giant spiders here because um, AC 14, 14 AC is not bad compared to other things we've seen. The points are 26. Spider can climb difficult surfaces, web walk, all that. So basically it knows where things are on the web. It's not... Injured by the web, and you can climb difficult surfaces. But this, this giant spider's bite has a chance to paralyze. So, plus 5 to hit, 7 damage on average. And the target makes a DC 11 con saving throw, taking 9 poison damage on a fail, or half as much. If the poison damage reduces the target to 0, the target is stable but is poisoned for 1 hour, even after regaining hit points and is paralyzed while poisoned in this way. So... If it attacks a creature, obviously the creature gets destroyed when it goes down to zero, so that doesn't matter. Attacks a player, though, that's big. And some of these creatures, I was like, how does this impact the playing of people, right? Because ultimately, if this guy's your key card, if his evolution's your key card, well, hmm. Get to see some fun stuff happen with him. And he's got web, which lets him have a plus five range. A plus five to hit, excuse me, the target's restrained by webbing. As an action, the restrained target can make a DC 12 strength check, bursting the webbing on a success. The weapon can also be attacked and destroyed with having an AC of 10, HP of 5, vulnerable to fire, immune to bludgeon, poison, and psychic damage. So, something to note is, can make a DC 12 strength check, bursting the weapon of success. So, because you gotta look at play actions, right? If I'm a player and I have my spider out, and we're all fighting the DM's one big bad, and I web it, the enemy has to skip their entire turn to break the web. Meanwhile, I get to go and all my buddies get to go. Basically, my buddies get to go a second time without worrying about the enemy if they have to spend one of their actions to bust open the web. 
which makes that pretty good, right? Now, what's nice about this game mode is this game mode can be great for one for a DM and just a player. If it's just you and your buddy and you want to do this, you guys can play this and do this fine. You don't need a play group for this game mode, which is nice compared to with normal Dungeons and Dragons. You do need a play group with a lot, not a lot, but a few of your friends to play with to have a decent sized play group for the enemy. In this, you're summoning a creature, the enemy is summoning a creature, so one-on-one -on -one fights are great if you're, it's just you and your DM. If it's, if it's you and two of your buddies playing, then you gotta think of, okay, as the DM, I need to either make tag duels where it's like a 2v2, maybe it's like a rotation fight like we did in Pokemon on top of those saw blades, if you don't know about that, check the episode out at some point. Because um, that is um, either on the YouTube here or on um, the other listening modes with the saw blade battle, the rotation fight, a lot of my players enjoyed that, I remember, so... Um, just sharing some stuff, right? DMs that get cool ideas about things. Um, anyway, back to this here. So, the spider's here basically because it can web and eat up a whole enemy's other turn. Right. If you can one time just eat up an enemy's turn, that's pretty good. Because if they're stuck doing stuff and they have to waste their turn, meanwhile everyone else gets a turn, that is huge. Same thing, DMs, if you have five spiders against your three playgroup. If three of those spiders all cast web and tie up your player's creatures, the other two get to act twice basically, because they get to attack. You as the players with the creatures can try to bust open the webs for your turn with the save. Let's say you spend your turn trying to make the save and you fail. Now it eats up two turns. And, and the players who didn't cast the web get to go an additional time with an additional attack. So that's just where that, that adds up. And gotta look at it that way too. Pack tactics means a lot in this game mode too. Like, like Even like the smallest abilities actually shine pretty well here. So those are some of the un uncommons, right? In CR1, uh, let me show off, uh, what was it, Imp, I think was another one. Was Imp one I wanted to show off? Let's see. Yeah, so Imp um, resists cold, bludgeoning, piercing, slashing, and unnatural attacks that aren't silvered uh, weight to it, because not anything so far that we've seen is a silvered weapon, unless you somehow get a silvered weapon. Um, so it's got resistance. This thing has AC 11, hit points of 10. Already better than the Quasat, right? Uh, shape change, it can basically change into a beast that resembles a rat, raven, spider, keeps all of its stats and its stuff, and it, if it's in the if it's in a beast form, it can do a sting, which is, I'll hit the target for 5 piercing, and the target must succeed on a DC 11 con saving throw, taking 10 poison damage on a fail, or half as much on a successful one, which is 3d6 poison. So, if they fail that, they're going to take an average of 15 damage, but the kicker is, the imp has invisibility. So the imp magically turns invisible until it attacks or until its concentration ends. So you turn invisible, you then can get advantage on attacking if it's a surprise attack if you're coming out of invisibility. Right? So there's merit to that for having a plus 5 to hit with advantage. And if it hits, they have to make a con saving throw. So if they fail, they take 15. Oh, and you try to hit my imp? Oh, that's nice. The damage is half and reduced. So that's why it's a lot better than the quasi, right? Because of that and... Being able to resist things that aren't silvered as well. So, um, the spy made an uncommon. I want to just go back quick and see why. AC of 12, points of 27. Oh, yeah. On each of its turns, the spy can use a bonus action to take the dash, disengage, or hide action. And once per turn, it can sneak attack. The spy deals an extra 2d6 damage when it hits a target with a weapon attack and has advantage on the attack roll. Or, when the target is within 5 feet of an ally of the spy that isn't incapacitated and the spy doesn't have disadvantage in the attack. So pack tactics, sort of, right? If somebody's within damage, it can, if somebody's right next door to you and you're attacking with them with sneak attack, or once per, per turn, not a day, turn, so a cycle, you can proceed to add 2d6 damage if you hit with a weapon, weapon melee attack. 
And you weapon melee attacks, you make two a turn. You can short sword, which is a plus four to hit and hits for five piercing. Or, or a bow and arrow, which hits for five. So let's say that you make your short sword attacks. And you get the sneak attack because your buddy's attacking it and you don't have disadvantage. Um, you get to add 2d6. So let's say that all your attacks hit with a plus four, not the worst. Um, you get 10 plus seven. You attack for about 17 a turn. Right. Uh, because of the cunning action, being able to dash, just engage, or hide, as a bonus, you can just try to hide in front of your player, in front of the enemy, and be able to pop out and get your sneak attack off. That's why you can, that's why it's a little better than the commons, because you can proceed to dash, just engage, or hide, compared to just something that hits damage-wise. It's not a huge difference. This is one of those creatures where it's like this kind of a weaker uncommon, but you need to have that, right? There needs to be like a range of a rarity, all right? Um, and that's going to come into play a lot more when you see the legendaries for two. Oh my god. That was so hard to decide what was good. Because <laughs> there's a lot of good things in two. But that's that for the um, uncommons and commons of CR1. I mean, there's a lot more, like I said. But I'm just pointing out some specific ones here. Oh, and if at any point you guys want to see in the comment, leave a comment video if you see something here. And you're like, Ryan, why is that in that tier? I've looked up the creature stats. I think that should be higher or lower. Let me know and I'll address it in the next video. Because I'd love to be able to talk about things like that. So, turning on to the rares of CR1. Bugbear, obviously, is a strong creature, right? Um, and this is what I was trying to decide if it should be an epic, should be a rare. Um, AC 16 baseline. We know high ACs are really good in this game. Uh, hit points of 27. Brute, uh, melee weapon deals one extra die of its damage when the bugbear hits with it, included in the attack. So it's already included in the attack parentheses. So, surprise attack. If the bugbear surprises a creature, it hits with an attack during the first round of combat. Target takes an extra 2d6 damage from the attack. Morningstar, plus 4, and it hits for 11, piercing. Or Javelin, uh, plus 4, hits for 9, piercing, or uh, 5, piercing at range. So, not, not a multi-attack, but it's here because of its AC of 16. And even if something gets a plus 4 to hit, it's not super significant to try to get to an AC of 16. Getting an AC of 16 is, is very good. And it has a shield, right? So you can't two-hand a weapon with a shield in one hand, but he doesn't have any two-handed weapons. So you always will probably have an AC of 16 on your bugbear, which is quite strong, and it deals one extra damage, which is with it included in the attack already. So Morningstar dealing 2d8 plus 2 piercing on average is 11 damage. So yes, he will only probably hit for 11 damage a turn, or 9 if you're going to use Javelin, which I guess you might want to use Javelin. Oh, I'm sorry, no, no, I take it back. Morningstar for an average of 11. And if you get that surprise attack, you can deal 18 damage on average on the first round of combat. If you surprise a creature with your bugbear. But, like I said, AC of 16 is very good. So, that's kind of why he's there. Granted, hit points of only 27. Alright, but hopefully you're not going to hit. That's the big kicker there, right? And it can speak common and goblin. Dark vision. Pretty much it. But it's plus 6 to stealth. Right, so trying to get a surprise attack off could be good if you want to hit something for 18. And then no one's saying you just don't release him after, right? You're in the middle of fighting, you're fighting with him, turns go by, he's getting weak, you just discard a bunch of cards, release the bugbear. I typically made things with a higher AC, air quotes traditionally, or typically, right? Be a higher rarity. And the reason for that is um, to release them, you're going to need more cards in combat, right? To send it to Purgatory, be able to call out a new guy for free. Um... You kind of need cards to get there. So by having a higher AC, it'll give you the chance to build up cards to release them, to switch. Uh, next thing. Harpy was a really interesting one. Uh, let me go over Goblin Balls quick, because that's around the same thing as a Bugbear. Uh, I have to look that up quick here. 
Yeah, AC of 17, right? Uh, nimble escape, it can take the disengage or a hide action as a bonus action. Uh, two attacks, one with the scimitar, but the second one has disadvantage. The scimitar, plus four to hit, and it's for five slashing. Uh, javelin, plus two to hit, and it's for one d6 piercing. So it definitely does not hit as hard as the bugbear, by any means. Um, I mean, it makes two attacks, right? But the second has disadvantage. <laughs> now, AC of 17 is great, but I, I, I weighed it out and I was like, listen, yes, I know I've talked about that things with a big AC are good, but you gotta have some damage to you, right? If you're only hitting for about five damage a turn, just only a, only a plus four to hit, eh. And only with the scimitar. If it wants to use javelin, it doesn't get that. Now, granted, as a reaction, when a creature that the goblin... When a creature the goblin can see targets it with an attack, the goblin boss chooses another goblin within five feet of it. The two goblins swap places, and the chosen goblin becomes the target instead. Now, that has some cool weight to it. You as a player can choose to give your... Um, have a whole team be comprised of goblins. So maybe you and your buddies are all playing goblin cards, so that way you guys can keep goblin boss switching up in the field if you need to, to keep your goblin bosses alive. Could be a really cool tactic, DMs, if you're trying to think of an interesting encounter to throw at your players where their creatures don't totally sweep. You have maybe two or three goblin bosses and like four or five little goblins running around them to help attack the player's creatures. And then if they try to hit a goblin boss, the goblin boss can just whoop, trade places with the goblin to have it take the hit instead. As you can imagine, I'm planning to make its evolution with one card, be able to summon the boss and maybe two just regular lesser goblins. That way it can use its effect on its own and not need other goblins to do so. But as a base creature, because that's what they're kind of based off of, it's around the same tier as me for Bugbear. Because Bugbear at least hits harder. This guy, eh, hits alright. 21 hit points, a little less than the Bugbear, I think. Let's see. Yeah, the Bugbear had 27 and a 16 AC. The Goblin boss only has 21. And it's a reaction, like I said, it's only good if there's other goblins at base, so. Um, Harpy was an interesting one. AC 11, hit points of 38. Why is it a rare? Multi-attack. It can make one attack with its claws, one with its club. Both only have a plus three to hit. It hits for an average of nine damage. But it has this thing called Luring Song. And, and this is another beautiful example where outside of combat and inside of combat an ability is interesting to think about. So. Uh, I could see this as being like a player in a tournament who has, um, who's maybe always wearing like, uh, like a headset like I have on, right? Or a, um, is wearing earplugs and maybe the, or DM a fun idea could be that the character that summons this, if it's an NPC who summons like a harpy to fight with, is deaf. So he's signing to the players. And, um, or he can speak and he wasn't born deaf and he knows how to like control his voice, but he can't hear and he's deaf. But... He's not affected by his own, by his own harpy's effect. Because here's what Luring Song does in a nutshell. There's quite a bit here. Um, so I'm going to read this quick. But the harpy sings a magical melody. Every humanoid and giant within 300 feet of the harpy that can hear the song must succeed on a DC 11 wisdom saving throw or be charmed until the song ends. The harpy must take a bonus action on its subsequent turns to continue singing and stop singing at any time. The song ends if the harpy's incapacitated. While charmed by the harpy, a target is incapacitated and ignores the songs of other harpies. If the charmed target is more than five feet away from the harpy, the target must move on its turn towards the harpy by the most direct route, trying to get within five feet. It doesn't avoid opportunity attacks, 
but before moving into damaging terrain such as lava or a pit, and whenever it takes damage from a source other than the harpy, the target can repeat the saving throw. A charmed target can also repeat the saving throw at the end of each of its turns. If the saving throw is successful, the effect ends on it. A target that successfully saves is immune to the harpy song for the next 24 hours. <sighs> Key things to note. 300 feet away. Yep. You want to pull every, we want to pull all the creatures out that are hiding in an area in the forest to potentially challenge them to get cards from them. That's a good way to hunt for creatures. You want to call a bunch of creatures all together so that the mystic, who's maybe wearing earbuds on the team, can cast a huge AoE spell and, and attack a bunch of creatures at one time. Perfect way to do it. So, it's great for outside the game implications, and obviously it could be a fun NPC character, because now, if this harpy charms an enemy player, ho oh, ho, that enemy player is now considered incapacitated. So good luck trying to give commands to your Oromon while my Harpy's just flying around, slashing and clubbing and hitting you. Now, whenever it takes damage from a source other, th other than the Harpy, that's also why it's a rare. The Harpy can just hit you for free, and you don't have to make the save. Brain only hits for 9 damage, like I said, but the Harpy can fly around and claw or club at you, and you don't have to keep making the save. So if the player's incapacitated and can't give their Oromon a command, the Harpy just flies over and keeps attacking their creature, and then they're, like, stuck. And then them as the player will continuously move towards the harpy till they're within five feet. This creature's scary, guys. This creature is so scary. I think it's underwhelming. Right, now that I've explained and you think about the possibilities that you could do with this harpy. Ooh. Ooh. I have a fun um, uh, amalgamation of it, too, with a, with a skeleton, I'm thinking. To make it be like a death harpy. So that'll be a fun thing to try. Maybe I'll give it the perish song effect instead of a lurish song, which might just knock creatures out and just have them... Slowly lose hit points every turn unless they can break it, in addition to having the other effect. So I'm looking forward to trying that out too. Um, like I said, once you find all these all these art and fusion and stuff like that online, to like not fuse, but I'm sorry, um, like I might be able to call it stitching instead of fusion because you're like stitching two creatures together, right? So I think I have good art for it too. Let me see if I can find it here. But anyway, uh, I'm gonna take a second while you guys are thinking about the harpy there, see if I can find the art of the. Thing I'm thinking about. If I can find it later on, I'll I'll show it on the screen so that people can see it because I think it's it's pretty cool and I think I want to have that be the art. For it, I can find it. All right. If not, I wasn't prepared to show it, so I don't. I don't have it named, unfortunately. I mean, I have it named. I just don't. I don't remember what I called it because I found so much, so many creatures I can use for things. So. So many creatures I can use for things. So trying to find it is a little bit of a, a little bit of a hassle. But it literally looks like like the creatures like half and half being like stitched together, which I think looks really cool. I want to try to find it. Like I said, there's a lot of art for this one I've been able to show off because I've found. And guys, this is just the tip of the iceberg. The creatures I've shown you, I have a lot more coming on the way from other artists and people I've I'm working with, which I'm so excited for. So again, thank you everybody for the donations that have come in so far because I've been able to put that to good use. Believe me, 
your your money is going to good <laughs> a good art and good cause. So I don't know where it is. I thought I had it. All right, so I finally found it here. Sorry about that. Yeah, so this is some stock art by Brett Neafield I bought to use, and it literally looks like right like two creatures that are like stitched together, um, to kind of like show off the card and like what it will do. I think like this would be like a good picture for the for the spell because right? making a custom spell for it. So showing how like that they're both intertwined, like you see the energy coming together on it. So I call that half good and evil. I would never have found that in my normal search. I don't know why I called that, but um, yeah. So that's gonna be what it's basically arts like look like in the theme. So. Something to look out for with stitching and sewing things together, so yeah. And like I said, Harpy there. Scarecrow uh is here, let's see. Did I put Scarecrow in the wrong spot or is Scarecrow CR1? Hmm. Yep, Scarecrow, um AC eleven hit points thirty-six. But it resists bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing from non-magical attacks, which is huge. It's vulnerable to fire, but not a lot of things have fire early on. Um, makes two claw attacks. So, plus three to hit, each, and each has an average of six, so that's about 12 damage a turn. If the target is a creature, it must extend DC 11 saving throw, be frightened until the end of the next turn. Frightened basically says... Frightened creature has this... Advantage on ability checks and attack rolls while the source of its fear is within sight. The creature cannot willingly move towards the source of fear. So it attacks you and then you can't move towards me. So you're scared, you can't move towards me, but you're already probably within reach of me if you have the five feet. But if you, and my understanding is, if we're fighting like this and the scarecrow comes in at the side, right, and hits the side of you, I don't think your character can willingly move towards you to look towards you, right? Like the piece can't on the board can't rotate to look at you. So he's now stuck attacking the other guy and he can't deal with you if you fail the wisdom save. Or he has terrifying gaze he can do as an action on his turn. Target's one creature can see within 30 feet. If the target can see the scarecrow, the target must see a DC 11 saving throw or be magically frightened until the end of the scarecrow's next turn. The frightened target is also paralyzed, which says... A paralyzed creature is incapacitated, cannot move or speak. The creature automatically fails strength and dex saving throws. Here's the kicker. The attack rolls against the creature have advantage, and any attack that hits the creature is a critical hit if the attacker is within five feet of the creature. Paralyzing is really good. All right, so that's why that that's there. Um, because it can do it from 30 feet. It doesn't have to be within a range. Such as if we were to look at the ghoul, right? I think the ghoul paralyzes. Yeah, so the ghoul can make once per turn, like once it can use a claw attack. And this is a common, jumping back to the commas quick for the ghoul. Um, hits for seven damage. If the target's a creature other than an elf or undead, must succeed on DC 10 con saving throw or be paralyzed for one minute. The target can repeat the saving throw at the end of each of its turns, ending the effect on itself on a success. So. That creature is also paralyzed, but that's assuming it fails a con saving throw of 10. This is a wisdom saving throw. So wisdom versus con. A lot of things have basic con, but not a lot of things have a ton of wisdom, right? The more beefier creatures have more con because they want to survive long. But wisdom is different. So wisdom kind of gets the topper tier, especially if it can make claw attacks to frighten people and it can gaze from 30 feet away as an action. Scarecrow for those who like to see the art. Um, I'll believe me, I have a lot of custom scarecrow and skeleton art. I'm pretty sure. Let's see, I can show off what I what I think I might use now. 
Obviously, these are thoughts and thinking. They aren't totally... I haven't, like, set in stone the creature until you see it actually, like, as a playing card. That will lock in the art for it. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, like, oh, I noticed that Scarecrow art you had in episode 9, but you're not using that here. Um, just because it's going to change, right? As I find stuff, it's going to change. Oh, it would help if I could spell Scarecrow. Here's one of the uh, one of the ideas I was gonna use for it. So I mean, look at that guy. Look at that guy. He's got a got like a machine in his hand. He's got bird. Yeah. So this scarecrow looks pretty good. I think. I think that's the one I'm leaning towards. Um, I don't know if I want to have that or make that be the evolution to just this basic guy. I have two different scarecrows I could use. I might use this as the basic scarecrow art, right? Because I need to find art for the original creatures and then have them evolve into something. So I might have it evolve into this one. Call it Reaper King or something. Because that pretty cool idea. Because ultimately, I don't want, like I said, I don't want to get in any trouble with Wizard of the Coast. So I'm trying to get my own art for everything, including the basic creatures. So that's a process. But we're trying. So let's go along. Okay. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Uh, let's move up to epics. Why are these things epics, Ryan? Well, let's see. First epic is Brash Dragon Wormling. AC of 16, hit points of 16. All right, 16 AC makes it pretty good. Immune to fire. Nice. Uh, bite. Seven piercing damage, breath weapons. So, breath weapons is really our first look into magic attacks next to casting spells. Right, because a lot of these things, not a lot, but some are like, oh, immune to non-magical attacks. Well, this is a magical attack, so already makes it pretty epic. Uh, for example, breath, there's two breath attacks. It could use fire breath, 20 feet line, that's five foot wide. Each creature makes the dex 11, picking 46 fire on a failed or half as much on a success. Or Sleep Breath. The dragon exhausts Sleep Gas in a 15-foot cone. Each creature in the area must succeed on a DC 11 con saving throw or fall unconscious for one minute. The effect ends for a creature if the creature takes damage or someone uses an action to wake it. That's different, right? Creature takes damage. It's going to get hit. Okay. It fell unconscious. What does unconscious as a status effect do? Did I lose my little tab? I think I did. I had a tab for status effects. Yeah. Okay. We are unconscious here. Unconscious creatures are incapacitated, can't move or speak, and is unaware of its surroundings. This creature drops whatever it's holding. The creature fails strength and dex saves. Attack rolls against the creatures of advantage. Any attack that hits the creature is a critical hit if the attack is from five feet. So it grants a critical hit and it grants advantage, but as soon as it gets hit, hit it wakes up, right? Or somebody else can skip their turn to wake you up. So those are both really good, obviously. That's why it's an epic. And that's a 15-foot cone, not a line. So that's why Brash Dragon Wormling is an epic. Um, looking at other ones quick, Fire Snake. Yeah, Fire Snake's not on the list here. Grab Fire Snake here. So a lot of things is like, oh, this unless fire, this unless magic. Well, here's Fire Snake. They're pretty good. Um, armor class 14, hit points of 22. Vulnerable to cold, but it resists bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing from non-magical attacks. It's immune to fire. Heated body. Here's the kicker. A creature that touches the snake or hits it with a melee attack while within five feet takes 1d6 fire damage for free. No save. You hit me, you take damage. Multi-attack. On my turn, as the snake, I can make two attacks. One with its bite and one with its tail. Its bite attack is 1d4 piercing plus 1d6 fire. There's fire. There's magical attacks. Magical attacks already get priority over other moves that don't deal super magical attacks because a lot of things are starting... Not a lot, like I said before, but some are getting resistance to magic attacks. Like, not magic, but bludgeoning, piercing, slashing, or tail. Again, plus three to hit, 
So on average, if this thing succeeds on its both of its plus three attacks of its bite and its tail, it'll take on average 12 damage, half of it being piercing and half of it being fire, which the fire part is good. And you hit me and you try to hit me for damage, you're taking fire damage. So this thing could actually take something down with it, right? If your guy's really weak, but he gets up and he finally finishes off the fire snake, then the fire snake hits him back for fire damage and he could also knock out. And we could see draws with this card, which makes it pretty interesting. Um, quad drone obviously makes four attacks. Makes the, the, any of the drones are obviously going to be higher level stuff, usually. Um, as they get higher, they just do multi-attacks, which isn't actually enough damage to, to compete with some of the other ones. Uh, I mean, I could look up quad drone quick just to show. Show what it does here. So quad drone, um, simply multi-attack, makes two fist attacks or four short bows. If it does four short bows, you take an average of 20 damage, which is pretty good with a plus four to hit. Uh, AC of 16 is also really good at this SR1, right? Flying speed of 30. But it can also make a fist attack, which is only plus three, and can make only two fists, which is only six damage on average a turn. So keep that as you will, right? If you're going to use a short bow when somebody's five feet from you, I'm pretty sure you're going to have disadvantage because the bow is not good at short range, so you have to use your fist, and you can only make two fist attacks for about six damage a turn, which is not very good. But you're here in the epic tier because you can fly. So you can be up in the air and you can simply shoot down at people a bunch. So that means the enemy needs a ranged attack to hit you if you're up in the air. Something to think about, DMs and players, right? Now that you are using creatures, your creature might only have physical attacks to hit you up front. So you've got to release it and summon something else in that fight. Otherwise, you're just going to lose your creatures like that pretty easy. All right. Almost done here. Gets us to the two legendaries. I deemed Animated Armor and Copper Dragon to be legendaries. Here's why. I'll do um, Animated Armor first. AC of 18. Mm. Good luck because 18 is so hard to get and 33 hit points. That thing's got a lot of health. Oh, it's immune to Poison and Psychic and it's immune to Blind, de Deaf, Charmed, Exhausted, Frightened, Paralyzed, Petrified, or Poison. Remember how we said like paralyzing and poisoning and frightening are what makes creatures good? Well, this thing is immune to those and being poisoned and psychic damage. So, hmm. Good luck with those. Granted, if it's an anti-magic field, it breaks apart. Um, the target by spell magic, the armor is going to con saving throw if it fails, it falls unconscious for one minute because it literally runs at magic power. Makes two melee attacks with each being a plus four and hits for five damage each. So, ten damage on average a turn with its slam attack. So, legendary because 18 AC as a CR1. Very good. Very strong. Um, animated armor is used in a couple of stitches, right? A couple of amalgamations uh, for numbers. Because um, it, it's just a suit of armor. So I can use it with so many things that are wearing a suit of armor as a nice fusion. Unless something's riding on it, then that's different. But as a nice fusion, it makes it as a good creature to uh, mix with things. And then that thing will proceed to have an AC of 18 if it fuses with it because it's wearing the animated armor, right? So, pretty good, I was saying. And for, like, just utility infusion, it's a really good card. Uh, damage is lackluster, 10 on average slam damage a turn. But it itself is pretty good. Copper Dragon. So already an HP of 22, more than the brass. And it can bite, which deals on average 7 piercing. Um, it has acid breath and slowing breath. So unlike the sleep breath, here's what these do. So this little guy's got acid breath, a uh, 20 foot line, five feet wide. 
Each creature makes a dex 11 saving throw, taking 18 or 4d8 acid damage on a failed save or half as much on a successful slowing breath. The dragon exhales gas in a 15-foot cone. Each creature in the area must succeed on a DC 11 con saving throw. On a failed save, the creature can't use, rea- can't use reactions. Its speed is half, and it can't make more than one attack on its turn. That is the kicker right there, right? In addition, the creature can either use an action or a bonus action on its turn, but not both. This effect la- these effects last for one minute. The creature can repeat the save throughout the end of each of its turns, ending the effect on itself with a successful save. So yes, it can break out of that. And yes, it doesn't grant advantage like the Brass Dragon, but making an enemy lose its multi-attack Getting its speed half. Can't use reactions. Nullifies a lot of what makes a lot of these creatures good, even if it's only for a turn. Forget about getting advantage trying to hit that creature. If that creature now can only hit me once instead of like four times, like the Quadrone, that's pretty good. I don't want to take from the Quadrone. I want to take four short bow attacks at a plus four, hitting me for five damage on average each. That's about 20 damage I'm taking a turn. Unless I make it be like, all right, you now have to make this save at the end of all of your turns of eleven DC 11 con saving throw. If you don't make it, then you still can only use one action a turn for one short bow for a measly five damage. Meanwhile, I'm coming in and biting you for about seven damage on average or breathing my acid breath, making you take 18 acid or have on a successful save. But that's still really good, right? And the thing about the, um, something to note, too, about the magical attacks for the dragons. I'm not rolling to hit you. You're rolling to either take half or all of my magic damage, right? As opposed to my melee attack where it's, okay, did I roll enough to meet Dracy? Cool, I'm hitting you for damage. Instead, when you're using a magic attack like Acid Breath from these dragons, it now becomes, hey, you have to save on my ability of dealing damage. And if you do, you still take half of this. You're not ignoring it like a physical attack. So that has weight to it as well. So that's why I made him a legendary because being able to make in in a 15-foot cone, all those creatures in front of you only now be limited to doing one action a turn and at the end of their turn they have to try to save is huge. So yeah, that's why uh, there's CR1 for you. Pretty exciting stuff when you go back and you compare that to like now the now brown bear that just hits for... 12 damage a turn, right? Or I think Lion was um, pretty lackluster, unfortunately, as well. Like Lion, right? And CR1 here. Uh, AC 12, HP 26. Uh, Keen Smell, Pounce. So anything with Pounce and Charge and things like that, I kind of gave back to the common tier because it does it once. It's like a one-trick pony. It can do it once. Kind of like the Bugbear, unfortunately, but nothing ever had close to an AC of 16 that could do that with the Bugbear. Only being able to do that for one on the beginning of the turn. And it doesn't multi-attack either this Lion. Unfortunately, it can only hit for either 7 or 6 damage a turn with this Bite or its Claw. If it pounces and moves at least 20 feet straight towards a creature and then hits it with a Claw attack on the same turn, DC 13 saving throw will be knocked prone. If the target is prone, the Lion can make one Bite attack against as a bonus action. But after that, it's done. Running leap with a 10-foot running start, the lion can jump up to 25 feet, which is nice for story, I guess, right? Uh, it is a large beast, so if you're a medium or small creature, you could ride on the back of the lion. Pretty cool. And you need to jump a gasm that the DM says is only 15 feet or 20-foot uh, long ga- like um, clip. You could, that's a, this is a perfect chance, right, where it's like, 
Yes, Lion is not the best fighter. But for utility outside of fighting, and if I need to jump a huge cliff or something, bam. Call back my keycard Armand for a little bit. Summon out a new Lion to help me with this task. And then bam, now the Lion, right on the back, we jump the cliff easy and we can continue on. And I don't summon the Lion in the fight, of course, unless I draw in the beginning and I have to summon a creature. Instead, I simply just release it, or use it as a card to discard to release, right? If I need to switch a creature out. So that's why it gives other creatures utility that aren't totally in combat. For the players that aren't in a campaign totally about fighting, and maybe you're in a card campaign that's about lore and learning about the world and doing missions for a guild or something like that. Not a totally like tournament arc, where like everyone's fighting a bunch of people to win prizes and things, but so different ideas for DMs and players, right? I also found some cool NPC art I'll share at some point too when I get more, but cool art for NPCs in the world that I, that I can use as well, so I'm happy and I'm really excited about that too. Anyway, that's CR1. That's done in a nutshell. Let's get into CR2 here. Ugh. If you're on, if you can see my screen here, you can see the huge list of CR2 creatures that I got here. Oh, there was so many. There was so many CR2 creatures. It wasn't even funny. I keep trying to expand the screen for you guys, but it's it's still just keeping it where 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 I thought it would be. Anyway, yeah, there you go. Now you can see them all. Nice. I just moved it over enough for you to see. Look at that list of those comments. I, I thought I could fit. If you're on stream, you were like watching me try to squeeze stuff to fit on one page. I was. I decided no. I can't. I can't fit on the bottom of this page. There'll be a big space here. But maybe I'll find some art and something cool to put there. Maybe like a creature. Maybe like if I move monster draw me like a dude with like a few dragons flying around his head. That could be really cool. Um, just ideas, obviously. Um, going on. Sorry about saying um so much. I've realized I've said that now a lot when I listen back to my recordings, but it happens to just be a, a tick when I'm thinking. So let's get on to the creatures. Um, starting here, CR2, we got the Allosaurus. Which is not on the list. Uh, I'm obviously not going to go through them all. I'm trying to think of what's a good one to show off, actually. Let's go into Berserker. Um, 13 hide armor, 67 hit points. Pretty nice. Um, but... Reckless. At the start of its turn, the Berserker can gain advantage on all melee weapon attack rolls during the turn, but attack rolls against it have advantage until the start of its next turn, and it gets advantage to only attack once with a Great Axe, hitting something for a d12 plus 3 slashing, or 9. Compared to these other creatures multi-attack that hit for like 20-something in the CR1, yes, you get advantage. That is nice. Enemies get advantage against you. But you only get advantage to hit for one attack at a plus five for nine damage. Not the best, right? Not the best. Next thing being, what's another cool one I want to show off? Um, uh, let's see. Let's do Druid. I think I did Druid here just because it was utility, but it wasn't the best. Yeah, again, the armor eight, 11. If you use bark skin, it's 16. So it can cast Druidcraft, Produce Frames, Shalele, Entangle, Longstrider, Speak with Animals, Thunderwave, Animal Messenger, and Barkskin as spells. And its actual weapon attack is Quarterstaff. Um, if you use Shalele, it's a plus 4, otherwise it's only plus 2. Hits for 5 feet, 1d6, or 1d8 if you have 2 hands. Or one, or about... So on average, it's for 6 damage with a plus 4 with Shalele if he's doing damage. Otherwise, not very good, right? Uh, okay, produce flame. It can throw it, I think, and that's about it. Thunder wave deals damage. So yeah, okay. This is a creature with slots instead of the druid that had per day. So the question to you guys as listeners still is how should slots versus days work 
And how should conditions such as being poisoned for 24 hours, as opposed to being poisoned for a couple hours, work? Could you get switched out? Should it regain all of its spell slots? Should it have to recharge the spell slots on a long rest? And then you as a player's like, ugh. I haven't summoned this creature since we started the dungeon and we haven't done a long rest. What slots of this creature did I use? Or did the slots just reset? And then the things per day should just be per day flat out. Because I think that might be the easiest ruling on it. Uh, let's see what else is here. Uh, Grick. Grick is a cool little creature. If you guys don't know what a Grick is, let me see if I can get it here. He's a common as well. But yeah, he's like a little snake dude with like, ah, like bird beak and like tentacles coming out uh they were worm-like creatures that lived away from sunlight their head was composed of a shark beak surrounded by four tentacles so the grick stats uh ac 14 hit points of 27 it resists bludgeoning piercing and slashing for non-magical attacks has advantage on dexterity strength checks to hide in rocky terrain uh, makes one attack with its tentacles if that attack hits it can make one beak attack against the same target so, if it hits for 9 damage with only a plus 4, then it can try to roll for a beak attack to hit for 5. But really, it's just protection and hits for 14 damage on average a turn if its first attack goes through. So, you can see how that's just a common, right? It doesn't even get second attack always. It's just if the first goes through. Um, let me start to find another one here. Minotaur Skeleton. AC of 12. I thought Minotaur Skeleton was going to be good. I was excited and then I read more about it and I was like, hmm, that's not very, it's not very good. Alright, so, vulnerable to bludgeoning, which a lot of things can actually bludgeon, immune to poison, immune to exhaustion, because it's the skeleton that's vulnerable to bludgeoning, bludgeoning, so that's kind of what hurts it. Charge! If the skeleton moves at least 10 feet straight towards a creature and hits it with a gore attack, the target takes an extra 2d8 or 9 piercing damage. The target is a creature, it must be in DC 14 or be knocked, or be pushed up to 10 feet away and knocked prone. Now with prone, you use half the movement to get up, and then you can run towards the creature so it can't continually charge you. But if you can't, if you're not your unconscious when it did that, and then can keep doing that, then that's super strong, right? It can either great axe or gore you. If it great axe, that's a plus six to hit. And then it's for 17 damage, or it's gore, which is plus six to hit, and hits for 13 damage. And if it gets the extra nine, that's who on average 26 a turn if it can charge you and great axe you. Which is great. Now we're in CR2, so stuff's going to hit harder. But that's it. That's it. As an AC of 12, hit points of 67, and that's, that's really it. It's nothing to shake a stick about. It's not very strong. It just, I mean, it's strong damage-wise, don't get me wrong, but there's no extra thing that makes it good. And at this point, we need creatures that have more than just damage. Now, you can play the game for power. If you're a power creature, this thing's great for you. Strength of 18, so you get that strength modifier to hit. You get all the extra buffs of being a power guy because this thing has a more strength than a 13. This is right up your alley if you're a power guy. Buff casts a spell on this thing, give him advantage. He's, he's hitting hard. But that's what he can do is hit hard. What does he do when he fights something that now is resistant to his slashing and piercing? Because it's a magical creature. Now it takes half. That 26 only becomes 13, and you as a player is like, ugh. I feel like I had this thing for 26 damage. No, you hit for 13. A little lackluster at that point. Uh, Hunter Shark is here because, well, at AC of 12, hit points of 45. 
I think Hunter Shark was one I was going between commons and uncommons a lot about. Uh, has advantage on melee attack rolls against any creature that doesn't have all its hit points. Very good. That's Blood Frenzy. A very strong ability. There's other creatures that have had Blood Frenzy that later on you'll see um, have Blood Frenzy, but don't have the water breathing aspect to it, which makes it not as good. So, because um, if it's in the water, right, it can proceed to be great. And we made a ruling where, like, they can be on land, but they have disadvantage because they're not in the water unless you're a pirate and have the pirate background, then you dodge that. So it's great for you. But what's your attacks? Well, I get a plus six and a hit for 13 piercing, which is pretty good, right? That's it, though. No multi-attack. One shot. You hit for 13? Great. Again, great for power players, but not for many others. Um, yep. Another good one to go over. Oh, the Nothic. The Nothic. I thought Nothics were really cool until I read more about it, and I was like, oh, Nothic, you let me down. So for the Nothic here, AC of 15, hit points of 45. So AC of 15 is pretty good. Uh, Evangel Wisdom save, multi-attack, it makes two claw attacks. So it's two claw attacks, plus four, one target hits for six. Connect for about 12 damage a turn. Or, Rotting Gaze, the Nothic targets one creature can see within 30 feet of it, must succeed on a DC 12 con saving throw against the magic or take necrotic damage, which is good. Or it can Weird Insight. Which says the knot that targets one creature can see within 30 feet. Target must make a charisma deception check against the Nothic's wisdom check. If the Nothic wins, it magically learns one fact or secret about the target. The target automatically wins if it's immune to being charmed. So. Alright, what that means is I can itch for 12 slashing. Or make you make a saving throw. If you succeed, the target must succeed on DC 12 con saving throw against the magic, or you take 10 necrotic. Not half, like the dragons were saying. You succeed, you don't take anything. I, I wasted my turn. Or, then you take 10 necrotic or 3d6. So that has weight, right? I could try to hit you. Might not work. I'm out of luck. So... A lot of these other ones here, pretty obvious. Polar bear, rhinoceros, saber-toothed tiger, all like the basic creatures that only kind of hit once or have a special thing once or down there. Uh, Sahugian priestess. Sahugian priestess. Get you that there. This is a common as well because... Blood Frenzy has advantage in all melee attack rolls against a creature that doesn't have all its hit points, which is pretty good, right? It can communicate telepathically with sharks. It can breathe air and water, but um, needs to be submerged at least once every four hours to avoid suffocation. Spellcasting can cast Guidance, Thaumaturgy, Blust, Detect, Guiding Bolt, Whole Person, a Spiritual Weapon of a Trident, Mass Healing Word, Tongue. Make two melee attacks, one with their bite, one with their claws. Her bite hits for only a plus three and hits for three damage. Her claws hits for a plus three and only hits for three damage as well. So yes, she has advantage on hitting things, which is great if they're hurt and below their max hit points. But 1d4 plus one on her damages? It's not, it's not the strongest, you know? It's not, not the best. I don't know what just happened to my, I just froze there. 
All right. Here's a spiritual weapon here for those wondering in the form of a trident. You create a floating spectral weapon that range that lasts for the duration. Uh, when you cast the spell, you can make a melee spell attack against a creature within 5 feet. On a hit, the target takes force damage equal to 1d8 plus your spellcasting mod. Or spellcasting mod. And this is the form of a trident. So, so let's say it's a, it's a 1d8 plus your spellcasting mod of 4. So 1d8 plus 4 to hit. Advantage. Then we're kind of talking that's a bonus action, unfortunately. So then we're kind of there, but you have to do that, and then you have to attack, and then the thing has to be hurt. And there's a lot of ifs ands in there for it to be good. So, so Hugin Priestess, you're down there. Uh, it's just all you tell me. She's probably one of the better commons. Don't get me wrong. What? Her basic attacks only hit for about three damage, and only a plus three to hit. Like if those were better too, she'd be way good. But I don't, I don't really see it. I don't, I don't really see it, unfortunately. Sorry, me and snacking, kind of hungry doing this. <laughs> Sorry. Uncommons. Awaken tree. What makes this uncommon versus common? Well, I see thirteen hit points of fifty-nine. Pretty sizable. Vulnerable to fire. Again, which is why that fire creature, the the magma, the lava snake, magma snake, fire snake, one of them, um, is an epic. Because a lot of things are vulnerable to fire, actually. Be surprised. So, because that thing deals fire damage and vulnerable, they'll take times two. Uh, it's resistant to bludgeoning, piercing. In general, not even magic attacks, just bludgeoning and piercing from any sorts of attacks. False appearance, and it has slam, which is a plus six on one target hits for 14 bludgeoning. So, it's got the resistance to bludgeoning and piercing, and not even from magical attacks. Even from magical attacks. So, that's what made it good in the uncommon. Is it a weaker uncommon? Yes. <laughs> but, it's got 59 hit points. This guy is big, and he hits you with a plus six to hit. Pretty sizable compared to everything else we saw down there. Like the other girl only gets a plus three. And reach of 10 feet. So I can be behind somebody who's in front of me and I'm just attacking with my branches here and dealing 3d6 plus four or 14 bludgeoning damage a turn. And I'm resistant to bludgeoning and piercing from the enemy, so I'm just beating him down while he's trying to attack me. And you know, pretty good. All right. Cult Fanatic is also an uncommon. Advantage on saving throws, it can cast Light, Sacred Frame, Command, Inflict Wounds, which has way to its spiritual weapon, Shield of Faith, and it can make two dagger attacks. But, you've got advantage on saving throws against being charmed. Let's take a look at Inflict Wounds, shall we? We're going to learn that it makes a spiritual weapon that gets them a free d8 of damage every turn they can roll to hit. Inflict wounds. Make a melee spell attack against a target you can reach. On a hit, the target takes 3d10 necrotic damage. So it can do that four times and try to hit something for 3d10 necrotic damage on its turn. Pretty good. I know this is bad for the Nothic, but that is the whole Nothic's turn. And yes, this eats up the cult's fanatic. But, um, plus three to hit. So, it's them trying to hit versus you making a save. So... Let's look at Shield of Faith. 
A shimmering field appears and surrounds a creature of your choice within range, granting it a plus two bonus to AC for the duration. Oh my god, this plus a legendary creature coming up. As a spoiler, a legendary creature, if it gets targeted with Shield of Faith, will have over, will have about a 21 AC. Yep. Good luck. See, there's some crazy strats you could do with some of these weaker creatures that know these spells that can enhance somebody else's creature on the team to just make them crazy. And that's where this game will be cool because you'll be able to see all these different creatures interacting to help each other that they wouldn't originally do. So we'll get to that when we get to that. I'll be like, up oh, there it is. So you'll see it in a sec uh, later on. Another good um, uncommon to talk about is the Ghast. Medium Undead, AC of 13, 36 HP, Stench. Any creature starts to turn within 5 feet, must succeed on a DC 10 con saving throw or be poisoned. On a successful saving throw, the creature is immune to the gas's Stench for 24 hours. The gas and any ghouls within 30 feet of it have advantage on saving throws against effects that turn undead. It can bite or claw. Bite is a plus 3, hits for 12. Claw is a plus 5, hits for 1 target for 10 slashing. If the target's a creature other than undead, it must succeed on DC 10 con saving throw or be paralyzed for one minute. Target can beat the saving throw at the end of each of its turns. So, I know that's a lot. Um, let's say that you are poisoned. Poison creature disadvantage on attack rolls and ability checks. So, you are trying to... If you get poisoned, now I, you have disadvantage to hit me. It's pretty good. And I can then proceed to hit you and slash you or deal extra damage to you with biting. And I can also paralyze you on top of that. The target can repeat the save throughout the end of each of its turns, ending the effect on itself on a success. But it's not immune to it, which has weight to it as well, right? If it, other things are like, oh, if it succeeds, it's immune for 24 hours. So that's like, great, okay. I did that for what? This, on the other hand, just does it. And if you're, if you're poisoned from the stench, like the gas is stench, right, it's for 24 hours. That's why this thing's only an uncommon. It's not a rare. While I can poison and paralyze you, you can keep paralyzing you every turn. May I mind you if he keeps clawing you and you have to keep making con saving throws. Paralyzed says, attack rolls against you have advantage and any attack that hits the creature is a critical hit if the attacker is within five feet. So if I'm attacking you and you become paralyzed and my buddy next door has a creature that is immune to my stench, it was not poisoned, not affected by other stuff. Now, until I go and until you go, let's say you are the bottom of the turn order and I get to go first because I rolled well on initiative. I'm going to attack you. You fail that check. You're paralyzed. Everybody between me and you now has advantage and if they're within five feet is a critical hit. Paralyzed has weight. Paralyzed is pretty good. Paralyzed can do all this stuff. So that and then plus if you're poisoned, you're already disadvantaged to hit me and my friends until you go. So you can see how this thing's pretty, pretty good. Uh, so yeah, as an, I mean, it's, it's an uncommon, don't get me wrong, but it's a lot better than we saw with like the druid or just some of the creatures like Hunter Shark. Okay, yeah, I hit for 12. <laughs> That's it. That's why it's in the comments. Uh, uh, what's another good one? Mimic. Start with the Mimic quick. Being an uncommon, an iconic Mimic, right? AC of 12, hit points of 58. Um... If it's in the object form, it can adhere to anything that touches that a huge or small creature adhered to the mimic. It's also grappled by it. Ability checks made to escape the grapple have disadvantage. While the mimic remains motionless, it's a chest. 
Mimic has advantage on attack rolls against any creature grappled by it. So if I'm biting you as the Mimic, I have advantage. I have 58 hit points and 12 AC. My actions. I have Pseudopod and Bite. If I Pseudopod you, I can proceed to hit you for uh, roll plus 5 to hit. 7 damage bludgeoning. If I'm in object form, you are then adhesive. So you are now st I stuck to me. I've adhesed you. I've stuck you. I'm grappling you. Ability checks made to escape at a disadvantage, which is a DC 13. And if I am holding on to you, I have advantage. And if you're grappled, grappled says your speed becomes zero. You can't benefit from any bonuses to your speed. Position ends if you're incapacitated. Position also ends if an effect removes the grapple. Basically, I hold you in place. And I get advantage to hit you. And you have disadvantage to break away. So, if I have advantage to hit you, then I do that. Or I can bite you, which says I can deal seven piercing damage plus four acid damage. So you see how it's like, yes. My hunter shark can hit for 12. Or, I'm holding you hostage, I have advantage on you, you have disadvantage to leave me, and I get to hit you for a bunch of damage. That's where those come in. So it's a little, like I said, these are like, uncommons are upgraded commons with a little more oomph to their stuff, but still ultimately deal around the same damage, around the same stuff, but they have an extra thing on top of it, so. And, I can't be prone, okay, <laughs> as the mimic, okay. Nice, I can't turn the box upside down, it just comes back, it just doesn't get proned. Okay. Uh, let's see if anything else is here. You have the ochre jelly here. AC of 8, hit points of 45. Uh, damage immunity to lightning and slashing. Interesting, it's immune to slashing. Immune, so it doesn't take any damage from your claw attacks. Damage resistant to acid, it can't be blinded, charmed, deaf, and exhausted, frightened, prone. Uh, spider climbing climb difficult surfaces, including upside down. Its actions are pseudopod, uh, plus four to hit, which is nine bludgeoning, plus three acid, so about 12 damage. Alright, that's pretty average, but it has a reaction that kind of puts it above the others. That's why it's uncommon. When a jelly that is medium or large is subject to lightning or slashing damage, it splits into two new jellies if it has at least 10 hit points. Each new jelly has hit points equal to half the original jellies rounded down. New jellies are one size smaller than the original. Well, the original is ooze. So if it gets lightning or slashed... And keep in mind, this is a multiplayer game. So I could summon a jelly and you could summon like a lion that can slash or claw at my jelly. Now I have two jellies. And the only downside is it splits if it has at least 10 hit points. Each new jelly has hit points equal to half the original jellies rounded down. So now my thing that had... 45 hit points, you hit me at 20, 45, so what is that? I'm blanking. About 23, 22 is about the half split, right? So we'll round down and say 22 to each creature. So now, bam, now I have two jellies at 22. All those things are now on my turn. I can command them to do pseudopod attacks and things, so. Then those guys get hit and they break into small creatures that now have... So now there's four, like, think about it. So my, my one jelly burst into two. Those two burst into four. Now there's four things that are all trying to hit you and pseudopod you, and it, it can add up, so. That's why that those are in the uncommon trait, because they can multiply and deal a lot of damage, or have just some fun role-playing elements if you cut it up and do things to it, so. Yeah. Ogre Zombie, yeah, okay. So this guy's got AC of eight. But hit points of 85! That's a lot of hit points! For CR2. Oh, it's damage immunity to poison. Oh, so this could be like a ghoul's best friend. Or, I'm sorry, a ghast. A ghast's best friend. Yeah. 
So if I'm playing with a gas and my buddy's got an ogre zombie, he's immune to the poison AoE effect. Oh, also the ogre zombie, since he's undead, has undead, or since he's a zombie, has undead fortitude. If damage reduces my zombie to zero hit points, it must make a con saving throw with the DC of five plus the damage taken, unless the damage is radiant or from a critical hit. On a success, I'm going to drop one hit point instead of dying. Now, I know I talked about things that for damage. This thing is a plus six and it hits something for 13. But if it gets knocked down with the hit points, it can say come back with one. And it has 85 hit points. This is a big dude. A big dude, right? So, um, and it can come back. That's what made it a little tier higher than the commons, is it has a chance to come back. And if it does, on my turn, I get a plus six to hit with my Morning Star. And I'm going to deal an average 13 bludgeoning. You want to be resistant to that damage. You only take about 6 or 7 on average. But whenever you try to, if you try to knock me down, I just make a DC 15 to try to come back. Something that's interesting to know as well is it's not like a once per day effect, guys. This keeps happening. So if I were to reduce the 0 points, I must make a con saving throw unless the damage is rating or for a critical hit. If I succeed, I keep coming back with one hit point. Let's say you're not, let's say you hit me for about 5 damage. Okay, my DC check is 5 plus 5 for a con saving throw. Well, I get a plus 4 to my con stat. That's why I have 85 hit points. So I keep coming back. Now granted, my wisdom, intelligence, and charismas are all negative modifiers. So if you try to cast a spell on me, I probably won't do well against a wisdom save. I'm looking at you, Mr. Scarecrow. But... But I am a, I'm a hefty unit. I'm a big unit. So you want something with a lot of health that just stays there and takes hits for the team, and then something else that's about 10 or 15 feet keeps shooting with a short bow? This is the thing you want in the front line. This is a good power card. Again, 19 strength, 18 con. Oh, it's a beautiful power creature. So things to take note of if you're planning to play this with your friends at some point. Um, spawn, what's another one I want to talk about? Oh, is just the Quagoth here? No. Didn't I say there wasn't there a Quagoth that was... Oh, Quagoth Spore Servant. Okay, so yeah, the Spore to the Quagoth. But the Quagoth itself... Oh, yeah. I know what I did for Quagoth now. Um, so Quagoth is here. A lower level uncommon for, for a little bit of an extent here. And I just want the Quagoth, yeah. Is because it itself is a Quagoth or Quagoth? Quagoth. Quagoth. Okay, thank you. Quagoth. AC at 13, hit points of 45, immune to poison, again, a body to the gas, but it's not undead, it's a humanoid, which is pretty interesting. Wounded Fury. While it has 10 hit points or fewer, the Quagoth has advantage on attack rolls. In addition, it deals 2d6 damage to any target it hits with a melee attack, or extra 7. Makes 2 claw attacks. So, plus 5 to hit, and on average hits for about 6 slashing, which if it's low enough in health, then becomes 13. Twice. It has multi-attack. It's not like the other creatures. There is this. It's not like the other creatures that I will always hit for 13. And yes, I might have advantage. But this guy, if he's low enough in hit points, 10 hit points or fewer, which is a little risky. We risk it for the biscuit around here. But um, 6 damage plus 7 on a turn. So you're rolling 3d6 plus 3 slashing with a claw attack. But you make 2 of them a turn. If it was 1, obviously this would be a common. But... 
They're having the chance to deal 13 twice for 26 on average total if I'm below 10 hit points. Pretty good. <laughs> so that's why it's there. It's a weaker uncommon compared to the other things. But nonetheless, it's here to party and it's here to stay. So uncommon. Uh, spine. Oh, Spine Devil. What was that one? I'm trying to remember back. I did these earlier on in the week when we did the streams. But let's see Spine Devil here. Oh, yeah, I made this thing an uncommon. All right. I originally made this thing an epic, and then I read one more, and I was like, mm. All right, Spine Devil. Spine Devil. Yep, there's the girl saying it there. AC of 13, hit points of 22. But uh, it resists cold, bludgeoning, piercing, slashing from non-magical attacks that aren't silvered. It is immune to fire and poison, and it cannot be poisoned. It's immune to being poisoned. Again, another gas friend. Um, this is only an uncommon because literally the rares are all so much better than this. This is like a premium uncommon. So for example, if your DM sets up a tournament where you can only use uncommons and commons to fight with, which could be like a pauper version, if you're an MTG fan or Magic Gathering fan, they call it pauper format, right? This could be a cool popper format or where you play with the lower rarities of creatures for a tournament. So everyone has to bust out their collections, rebuild their decks, have to make new combinations and combos with their commons, uncommon creatures, cards that they've collected throughout the game. Could be a really fun avenue because your players might be thinking, oh man, I got all these cool rares and epics and things. DM, what's next in the store? And your DM's like, all right, we're going to go to this local town to fight a tournament, but you can only use commons and uncommons for the fight. Or maybe there's a dungeon where the magic energy in the dungeon prevents the use of rare or higher creatures. There are so many cool things you can do with this game, guys. And if you ever need and want to talk to me about ideas, hop in the Discord down below. I'm always open to talking about cool combos, ideas for creatures, different plans to implement, things like that. So anyway, back to the Spine Devil. Devil's Sight, magical darkness that doesn't impede the Devil's Dark Vision. Flyby. So the devil doesn't broke an opportunity attack when it flies out of an enemy's reach. It has a fly speed of 40, guys. So it can fly up in the air, come down 20 feet, attack, fly back up, and doesn't provoke opportunity attack. Limited sight. It has 12 tail spines. Uh, spines, I'm sorry. Use spines regrow by the time the devil finishes a long rest. And magical resistance. And in addition to being resistant to cold, bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing from non-magical attacks, it has advantage on the same throws against spells and other magical effects. Do you try to cast a spell or magical effect on me? I'm going to roll twice to see if I succeed, because I have advantage on that. And I make two attacks, one with its bite and one with its fork, or two with my tails. So I can shoot down for my tails and hit for plus four for four plus three's fire damage. So I can hit you for about seven fire damage up in the air twice. So 14, um, I have 14 damage. Half of that ish is piercing, half of that ish is fire. And I'm magical resistance, so you try to attack me with the magic spell because I'm far away. I have advantage on the save. Oh, you try to shoot your little short bow at me? Well, I'm resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing for non-magical attacks that aren't silvered. I'm taking half damage. I have an AC of 13. Hit points is 22. But this is a premium uncommon. This is like the one you see in a pack list. You're like, mm, that. Because if I have a pauper tournament or ever a tournament or a dungeon where I have to use lower level creatures, that is one of these shining creatures at a low level tier. So, because I fly down, hit you, I don't provoke opportunity when I fly away. They're all trying to slash at me. You can't reach me. I'm 20 feet up in the air. Oh, you have a bow and arrow? All right, I'll take half. Oh, I'm up in the air? Okay, I'll shoot down my flaming spines that can reach you from 20 to 80 feet away. 
So you see how Spine Devil's pretty good at the uncommon tier. Now we'll get into some of the rares. You might notice I have three dragon wormlings in the rare category. Black, green, and white. We have reached a lot of dragon wormlings here. And the reason for that is I, I originally had all the dragons in legendary. And I was like, this legendary list is way too big for this tier. And I was like, there's like barely any rares, barely any epics. All right, I'll sprinkle the dragons down lower because just the other legendaries are just so much better. Black Dragon Wormling. We'll start with some of the dragons here. It's the Black Dragon Wormling. AC of 17 as a rare. Um, oh, I wanted to make there be more rares than epics for CR3. Because you gotta understand, the other epics and stuff is just so much stronger than this. So I needed to make some more rares here. Now granted, I guess I could have moved some of the commons into the uncommons and some of the uncommons up to the rare status, like the Spine Devil. But these rares just seem so much stronger. You know what? I'm actually kind of convinced now after talking that maybe I should move the Spine Devil up. Because it just seems so strong. I'm going to move it up. I wanted to make a good number of uncommons, but... I think Spine Devil, after discussing it, and again, like I said, as I talk with you guys, the listeners here, you, I speak through and then I'm like, wow, that creature's actually stronger than I thought. And again, with playtesting, this whole system might change. These creatures might shift around a lot, depending on people. Like, that's way too good. So, let's get into the, some of the dragons here, like I said, for the rares, for CR2. AC of 17. Ah, it's for 33 HP. Okay. Has a swimming speed of 30, flying speed of 60. It's only in the rare, <coughs> excuse me, only in the rare category because it has a bite of four, plus four to hit. It's for 1d10 piercing, plus 2d4 acid, about nine damage a turn with its bite. In between that, it uses acid breath. It exhales acid in a 15-foot line that's five feet wide, shortest line of any of the other dragons we've seen. Each creature in the line must make a DC 11 dex saving throw. Things have pretty okay dex at this rarity so dex is not dex is about an average stat or taking 22 or 5d8 acid damage on a failed save or half as much on a successful one so technically i could only take 11 damage from that as acid if i succeed on that dc 11 which is not a high check dc 11 dex saving throw granite's magic granite's acid but we've already seen a lot of things that are immune to acid and poison so that's not that good if you think about it. Granted, yes, I have an AC of 17. But obviously these, this is better than like the ogre zombie, better than the other thing. So I have an AC of 17, good luck trying to hit me. But when I'm not using my acid breath, I only hit you for about nine damage. Once a turn. So sorry, Black Dragon, but that's why you that's why it's not an epic and it's not a legendary. Because going back and looking at it, right, think about it. We're now at the point, and this is where it gets crazy. We're now at the point where AC 17 drops you down to a rare status because the rest of you just doesn't hold up. And we talked about before, right? Oh my god, Noble AC 17 as a reaction. That's really good. That's why that thing's top tier. Yes, it's top tier for its CR compared to other things, right? So the dragons, while they have an AC of 17. And they can't be hit very well. And 13 hit points is sizable. It's just heading for 9 a turn unless it does that acid breath. Which if you save, you take half. At this tier, things are getting plus 6, plus 7, plus 8 to hit. 
you only have AC armor of 17, but if you're going against something that's a plus 6 or plus 7 hit, it's probably going to hit you, chances are. And you only have 33 hit points, buddy. And you're for, what, 9 a turn? <laughs> Good luck. Against something else, like the other dragon on the last page, that the other rarity that we saw that slows, that makes you only have one action a turn, that is so much more impactful, right? So that's where, yeah, AC 17 is in the rare category. Next thing being the green dragon. We're almost done, guys. I promise. I don't, if you aren't looking at the stream, you just to get through some rares, epics, and legendaries, and we'll almost be done. Thank you for that's been sticking around. As you can see, I have been busy with this a lot and finding so much art. It's been great. Anyway, green dragon. Again, AC 17, 38 hit points, a little better than the green dragon hit points, but what does the green dragon do? Well, a bite attack and hits for an average of 10 damage, 7 piercing, 3 poison. And okay, poison breath. The dragon exhales poisonous gas in a 15 foot cone. Each creature in the area like a DC 11 con save or take 21 or 66 poison damage on a fail or half as much on a success. So again, poison gas. We're coming into things that are immune to poison, we've seen, right? Again, that's why I mentioned that earlier because poison and acid are damages of creatures that could be immune to these. These undead, like the ogre zombie, is immune to poison. Poison breath does nothing to it. But I have an AC of 17. So my piercing, my 10-ish damage from bite a turn might be good. So this is where, like, you know, you think of dragons, and it has an AC of 17, which is great. But, but, that's all it really has going. It's immune to poison. It can be a gas best friend, right, as our saying goes. But, ultimately, it's not heading for a ton. When only when it's not doing its poison breath again, it only can hit for about ten damage average a turn, with only a plus four. So that's why those guys are there. Pendadrone is in the rare category because it makes five armed attacks. Uh, armor attack is a plus four and hits for five. So by average, it deals forty-five, but twenty-five arm damage. Right, because five times five. Paralyzing gas is also why it's a rare. Excel uh, a 30-foot cone of gas. Each creature in the area must have seen on DC 11 con save throw or be paralyzed for one minute. A creature can repeat the save throw at the end of each of its turns, ending the effect on itself on a success. At the end of your turns. We've talked about paralyzed before to remind people quick. Paralyzed. Attack rolls against the creature have advantage. Any attack that's the creature is a critical hit. And it's an AoE paralyzed. Forget about a ghast. Dealing it with just its attack and you saving. This is a 30-foot cone of gas. And each creature in the air must like a DC-11 con save or be paralyzed. If you're paralyzed and everyone else gets advantage. Oh, what's that? You're paralyzed and you failed your check against me? So now you're still paralyzed? Well, on my turn, I'm going to be able to get five attacks on you with advantage. Oh, I'm within five feet of you? Those are critical hits. You can see why it is a uh, why is it why it's a rare, right? Because that's that's pretty good and an AC of sixteen. So you got the AC and you're hitting pretty hard. Honestly, Pentadrone, you might be an epic now that I look at you, buddy. Like I said, I'm moving around so many things here. Yeah, actually, Pentadrone, I'm really thinking of moving you up because uh, if that thing fails to save, you are hitting like a truck. That's a drone here. 
And I moved so many creatures around, so the alphabet might be a little messed up on my creatures here. I apologize if you're like, Ryan, the alphabet's not right. You didn't organize them right. I'm trying. All right, um, let's keep going here. Uh, priest. You're probably wondering, why is Priest in the rare category? Let's take a look at Priest, shall we? Priest. AC of 13. Hit points of 27. But Divine Eminence is an ability that it has... As a bonus action, the priest can expend a spell slot to cause its melee weapon attack to magically deal an extra 3d10 or, or I'm sorry, 3d10, 3d6 or 10 radiant damage to a target on a hit. If the priest expends a spell slot of second level or higher, which it has two of those, second level or higher, it has five of those, it can increase it by an extra 1d6 for each level above first. So, it could add, if it expends a third level spell slot, it could add, it could be 5d6 radiant damage, plus its mace, which only gets a plus 2 to hit, but hits for 1d6. So that could be 6d6 damage. Now, let's say you don't want to do that. Let's say you want to use the priest for its, for its spells, spiritual weapon, but it has, guys, dispel magic and spirit guardians. Let's take a look, shall we? Spirit guardians in particular. You call for, this is a lot of words, you basically call for um, spirits in an AoE area of effect of, on yourself, a 15-foot radius away from yourself. They flirt around you to a distance of 15 feet. If you're evil, they appear fiendish. If you're holy, they appear fey or angelic. Uh, when you cast a spell, you can designate any number of creatures you can see to be unaffected by it. You do it to yourself or to, yeah, you do it to yourself. It protects you and your friends don't get affected by it, but... An effective creature's speed is halved in the area, and when the creature enters the area for the first time on a turn, or starts its turn there, they make a wisdom save. And we talked about how things have really bad wisdom, right? On a failed save, the creature takes 3d8 radiant if you're good, or 3d8 necrotic if you're evil. On a successful save, the creature takes half. But that's the start of its turn. The start of its turn. It does that. Granted, yes, your attacks, and then if you do that for one of your third level spell slots, then you can use your other level spell slot to hit something for 66 radiant damage, or 5d6 radiant, and then 1d6 bludgeoning, plus two to hit, but you have that continuous AoE effect around you. That is just strong. Things are just taking damage for free, and if they roll bad, they take half of that 3d8 every turn that you are alive. And you have Cure Wounds, which can heal. You have Sacred Flame that you can throw. You have Spiritual Weapons, so you can summon, like, a Spiritual Sword to attack with you. So that's why this thing's rare, and it's better than the Mimics and the Uncommons and Spec and the um, Quagoth we talked about and the Cult Fanatic, right? It's just so much better. <laughs> so, and it's around that with the Dragon, right? Because the Dragon can do good stuff. It can do a Breath Attack. It's got an AC of 17, but that, that's what it's got, so... A Swarm of Poisonous Snakes is a rare um, AC 14 hit points of 36. Because it's a swarm, it's immune to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing. It can't be charmed, frightened, grappled, paralyzed, petrified, prone, resistant, or strains, or anything that's special of a creature. You know that. Uh, bite attack is plus 6 to hit, 0 feet, so that's on the creature's space. And that creature will take 2d6 piercing, or 1d6 piercing if the swarm is at half. Target must succeed on DC 10 con saving throw, taking. 46 poison damage on a failed save or half as much on a successful one. So on average, with a plus 6, 
you can deal 21 damage every turn. And you're immune to, or not immune, you're resistant to bludgeoning, piercing, or slashing. You know, honestly, I think I'm going to move that down. Now that I look at it compared to literally everything else we've talked about, that does not seem as good. So I'm moving you down to an uncommon in there. Now I made up for the spine devil. I put something else in place of it on the list. So Swarm of Poisonous Snakes is now over there. There we go. Okay. Cool. And we'll talk about the white dragon. I skipped the rug of smuggle rug of smothering. Uh, I guess I'll talk about it real quick. I'll give a sparks note, right? AC 12, hit points of 33. Um, okay, yeah. Damage immune, so it's immune to poison and psychic. So good luck trying to do a poison gas, some effect, immune to it. Condition immunity to blinded, charm, deafened, frightened, paralyzed, petrified, poison, because you're a rug. Rug is um here because it's a, as the rare because damage transfer. Basically, Rug has the ability smother. Plus five to hit, reach five feet, one medium or smaller creature. The creature is grappled, escape DC of 13. Until the grapple ends, the target is restrained and blinded and at a risk of suffocating. And the Rug can't smother another target because it's smothering one. In addition, at the start of each of it of the target's turns, target takes 10 or 2d6 plus 3 bludgeoning damage. No save, like the Spirit Guardians. It just takes... 2d6 bludgeoning at the start if you fail that grapple check. And what's special is damage transfer. While it's grappling a creature, the rug takes only half the damage dealt to it. And the creature grappled by the rug takes the other half. Fire, ice, bludgeoning, piercing, slashing. Half, no matter what it is, also gets dealt inside to the creature. Now, now if somebody casts Dispel Magic, like from the Priest... The rug must see on a con saving throw or fall unconscious. So the priest is kind of a check to the rug and the animated sword and the animated armor, right? The living things. It can dispel magic and try to shut them off for a little bit. And while the rug remains motionless, it's indistinguishable from a normal rug DM. So you could put this in a monster house or inside of a royal castle and it comes alive and try to attack the players and then they have to summon their creatures to fight it off. Heaven forbid this thing grapples a player! Now their Ormon's out and he can't do any actions and the other players... Have to try to fight this rug to save their other player. Oh, the ideas you could do with this. Crazy. That's why it's a rare. Damage transfer, free damage at the start of its turn. And the enemy just takes, right? You don't roll. It's just that the target takes 2d6 or 10 bludgeoning damage. It has to be medium or smaller creature. So if it tries to do it to a large creature, it doesn't work. Keep that in mind. But players are probably medium or smaller creatures. So. Could be really strong and a good surprise against the players. And finally, White Dragon. White Dragon's in the rare category. Only AC of 16. Originally, White Dragon was the only rare dragon until I compared it to its other stats of the other creatures, and I was like, okay, this is about along the lines of black and green. White Dragon, right? AC of 16, so worse than the other DC, uh, AC 17 dragons. Immune um, to cold. Bite, plus 4 to hit. 1d10 plus 2 piercing. So, 1d4 ice. So about 9 damage all the other bite, and then cold breath like the other dragons. Icy Blast of Cold Air in 15 feet. Each creature in the area must make a DC 12 con save or take 22 cold. On a failure, they take half as much. I'm sorry, on a fail or half as much on a success. So if you succeed that DC 12 con check, a lot of things have an all right con. They're going to get modifiers to that. They're going to get bonuses to those saving throws. They will instead take about 11 cold damage and a 15 foot cone. And then otherwise you're only heading for 9 damage when you don't get that recharge back. 
All right, moving away from the rares, we're in the epic category with the Azer. Let's go into the Azer quick. Azer, kind of like the snake. AC 17, so like the dragons, right? This stuff that's up in this tier has to be better than the dragons by putting the dragons lower or up to that tier with a little bit extra. AC 17, we're already up there with the AR with the armor class. Immune to fire and poison. Another gas best friend is this Azer. Interesting combination for players, right? I want to summon the gas to get poison and paralysis off for the team. My other guy sends out an Azer. He's not going to get affected. He's immune to the fire and the poison, which is huge, right? Heat a body. A creature that touches the Azer or hits it with a melee attack within five feet takes one D10 fire. You want to hit me? Fine. I roll D10. You took that much fire. Oh, you're vulnerable? Oh, that's double. When the Azer hits with a metal melee weapon, it deals an extra 1d6 fire, including the attack, and it shows a bright light in a 10-foot radius. Warhammer. It gets a plus 5 to hit, reach of 5 feet, and it's for 7, 1d8 bludgeoning, or 1d10 plus 3 bludgeoning, if used with two hands to make a melee attack, plus the 1d6 fire that it mentions with heated weapon. So, this thing could deal on average 11 damage a turn, instead of only the dragons 9 or 10, and if it gets hit, unlike when the dragons get hit, dragons get hit, they just take damage. This guy gets hit. If you hit, magically hit this thing, if, you, if a creature touches the Azer or hits it with a melee attack, within 5 feet, they'll take 1d10 fire. This thing has an AC 17. So you're hitting this thing, but this thing gets to deal you free fire damage if you hit him with a melee attack. Most things in this early game tier are probably going to be attacking you with a melee attack. To note. Oh, my turn? Okay. If I'm two-handing this weapon, which I don't see why I wouldn't use two hands, because all I have is a warhammer. I don't have a shield, right? Oh, I do have a shield. I take it back. Neutral armor or a shield. Okay. Azer, you're not making me rethink my placement of you, because you, if you're without a shield, your AC goes down to 15. All right, let's say that you do have your shield. You still hit for 7 plus 3 fire for 10 damage a turn. I still think that is, I still think that's better than the dragons, right? The dragons, yes. AoE attack of elemental damage, nice. But that's a recharge. That's once on the start of your turn, roll a d6. If it's 5 or 6, you recharge. Otherwise, you're only hitting for about 9 with your bite. This guy, you hit me with, with an AC of 17, you take fire damage if it's melee. And I deal an extra heated elemental damage to you. So, I think it's worthy of being an epic. It's a scuff. It's, it's on the cusp. Because if you decide to throw away your shield or put down your shield and just use your warhammer, you're now dealing 11 or 1d10 plus 3 plus 1d6 fire. But if anything hits you, they take damage and you have an AC of 17. So if people are hitting you, they're probably taking. Like for example, dragon flies down, tries to bite you. They're going to take damage back if they successfully do it. And then on your turn, you hit them for an additional damage. Sheds bright light in a 10-foot radius and dim light for an additional 10 feet. So if you need to light up a cave, Azer's a good buddy for you. All right, let's go to the Bandit Captain. Like, why is a Bandit Captain AC of 15? So worse than the Dragons, right? But HP of 65. And it's multi-attack. Oh, boy. Multi-attack. And 65 hit points, unlike the Dragon's 30. The Captain makes three melee attacks. Two with the scimitar and one with the stagger. Or the captain makes two range attacks with its staggers. So it can attack twice with its scimitar and once with its stagger. Well, its scimitar gets a plus five and it's for six slashing. And its stagger is plus five and it's for 1d4. So two with the scimitar is 12. 
plus its dagger is an additional 5 damage on average. So 12 plus 5, this is hitting it for on average over 3 attacks, 17 damage. You're like, right. What about it has parry, like the noble does. So the captain adds 2 to its AC against 1 melee attack that would hit it. Do so, the captain must hit the attack and be wielding a melee weapon. Well, all you have is a melee weapon. So this thing has the dragon 17 AC against one melee attack, of course. But 65 hit points, a length of 33 from the dragon. So arguably, right, what's better? Is the bandit captain better with having 65 hit points and a potential 17 once per cycle of AC? And can make 17 damage on average a turn compared to the dragon that can only make about nine. Yeah, it's one breath attack. But if I save, because I get a plus two to my con, if I try to make a save, chances are I might beat that save and only take 11 from your breath attack, buddy. Well, I'm hitting you for about 17 a turn. I think it hits harder on average than the dragon. It can, uh, it can sometimes have a better AC. But it's got almost double the dragon's hit points. Who knew that a bandit captain would have more stuff, more stats in it than a dragon would? Crazy. Anyway, uh, bronze. Now we're getting the bronze. Why is bronze better than black and green? Let's go to the bronze. Wait. A oh, brass and copper were the other ones. Bronze. AC is seventeen, just like the other dragons. Thirty-two hit points. Immune to lightning. Bite, but this thing has two breath attacks. Bite, which on average hits for plus five and hits for eight piercing. Or its breath attacks are lightning breath and repulsion breath. Lightning breath, the dragon inhales the lightning in a 40-foot line that is five feet wide. Each creature in the line must make a DC 12 deck saving throw, taking 16 lightning damage or half as a success. The lightning breath's not that good, but it has repulsion breath. The dragon inhales repulsion energy in a 30-foot cone. Each creature in the area must have seen on DC 12 strength saving throw. On a failed save, the creature is pushed 30 feet away from the dragon. Thirty feet away. Guess what that does? That provokes opportunity attacks. From everybody that was attacking you. <laughs> so if me as the dragon. And my buddies, my buddies guys are all fighting you. I come on, my dragon flies down, does its repulsion breath, blows away a bunch of enemies in a 30-foot cone. Anybody else that was hitting those enemies gets now an attack of opportunity. A free attack. From all of my teammates, depending on where they are placement-wise. Or if you're a big bad and this dragon's fighting with kobolds in its lair. And now... Right? Because all those kobolds that had a creature get pushed away from them, an opportunity attack. And that's why it's a higher tier, I feel, than the other dragons that are makes things immune to this, makes things immune to that. A strength save, which there are some strong things. So chances are it might not push everything away. But it has two breath attacks, two different breath attacks. And it bite only has on average eight piercing. And it's lightning breath is not the best. That's why it's not a legendary. But if it can have the chance to provoke opportunity attacks from the entire team, then it matters. Then it has weight to it. So that's why it's an epic versus the other things where it's like, okay, I took 11 acid. Great. I took. And then 22 
On average, 22 damage, but if I save it, it's only 11. Okay. And meanwhile, your only other tech hits for 9. But this thing can make everybody broke an opportunity attack. These are things that you gotta think. How can I break this? And that's where I was looking at ways now people that think could break certain abilities, right? Like you could be a Dragon Tamer deck and some dragons, maybe you have like an, a dragon tattoo on you or something that makes your dragons hit harder. Then their dragons are really good, right? So all different things. I'm doing it at the base player level. Um, Paraton, because people are looking at Paraton thinking, why is Paraton here? Um, Paraton is an epic because, let me read it here. Why am I having second guesses about Periton being that good? This one I want? No. There it is. I think that's pronounced Periton, right? Periton? Periton. Periton, yeah. ACF 13, hit points of 33. Okay. Flying speed of 60 feet. All right. Resistance, bludgeon, piercing, and slash from unnatural attacks. Okay. Dive attack. Here's where it gets really good. Right, because talk about the Spine Devil being able to fly around and dodge attacks, but here's Dive Attack for the Periton. If the Periton is flying and dives at least 30 feet straight towards a target and then hits with a melee weapon attack, the attack deals an extra 2d8 damage to the target or 9 damage. Flyby. The Periton doesn't provoke an opportunity attack when it flies out of an enemy's feet. So, I have 60 feet of flying. Okay, I'm going to fly 30 feet up in the air. Fly down for 30 feet, get the, I'm 60 feet, so I'm going to fly down for 30, attack you, fly back up, good luck trying to hit me, I am resistant to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing. So if you do hit me, I only have 13 AC, you do hit me, it's half damage. But every time I fly down, it's an extra 2d8 add to my damage for a claw. And so with a melee, oh, any melee weapon attack, the attack deals an extra damage. Oh, I have multi-attack. I make one gore and one talent. Okay. So my first attack is going to get 2d8 added. And I have a plus 5 to hit. Okay. Each of my attacks, one of my attack deals 1d8 plus 4. The other one deals 2d4. I'm probably going to use talents first, right? I could deal, on average, fly down. If my melee weapon of talents hits, that's about 8 on average, plus the 9 from the dive attack. That's 17. Plus the 7 on average for my gore, that's 24. And I can fly back up, and I have resistant. You see why this is better than the other creatures that we've seen with flyby? Uh, because it has dive attack as well, which gives it extra damage when it hits, and it can just fly away for free, and if the enemy tries to hit you, they have resist you have resistance against bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing for non-magical attacks. And a lot of things early game have bows and arrows. So those are probably going to be resistant damage dealt to you. Now I guess the good question is, is this worthy of an epic? Now that I look at it. Is this better than a dragon? It hits for 24, average, 24 damage every turn, which is quite strong. Hmm. I'm now thinking, it only has an AC of 13. So the, but the damage it takes is half, presumptively. This thing it says with a magic attack, though, it's pretty done, right? Yeah. Actually, now that I think about it, I'm going to move it down to a rare as well, because it deals 24 damage a turn, and it has the extra flyby in damage. Does it get advantage? No. If I straight hits with a melee weapon attack, the attack deal, just deals an extra. Okay, so it doesn't have advantage. Yeah. All right. 
Um, it wasn't epic. It's gonna go down to a rare because it's not it's not as powerful as some of the other stuff we've seen. And this is where, like, when I make the list at first, right, I go through things, and it's going to probably take a bunch of revisions to reorganize things, but. Uh, finally, the Silver Dragon. Wormling and the Epic, and then we can move on to Legendaries, and then we're done. Um, Silver Dragon. Looking at the Silver Dragon. AC-17, like the other dragons. Uh, it's immune to cold. It has bite. But this thing's an Epic because it has all these effects. And this was the only dragon I think I was considering potentially doing Legendary, but. Uh, it's on average four. It gets a plus six to hit, which is better than the other dragons. It gets nine piercing. Uh, breath weapon. The dragon uses one of the following breath weapons. Cold breath. The other guys. Uh, but a 13 con save, so a tougher save than the other ones. A higher check needed. 15 foot cone each creature, otherwise it takes 18 or 48 cold damage on a failed save or half as much on a successful one. Paralyzing breath. The dragon exhales, exhales paralyzing gas in a 15 foot cone. Each creature in the area must have seen on DC 13 con saving throw or be paralyzed for one minute. Creature can beat the saving throw at the end of each of its turns and in the effect on its success. So, it's like Pentadrone, and that's why Pentadrone moved up for the paralyzing breath, right? It's only 15 feet, DC 13 con save. So, but it's got an AC of 17 versus the Pentadrone 16. It's got 45 hit points, definitely making it the strongest of the bunch, but. When it compares to the other famous legendary creatures, I don't think it's that good compared to them. That's why it's only an epic. But that paralyzing breath, right? Making something paralyzed, granting everybody advantage if they're within five feet and a crit. Very strong. So that's why that's there. Compared to pushing people away and giving them opportunity, what if it just gave all my teammates advantage and a crit if they hit before the enemy can save again on their turn? Pretty good. Pretty good. All right. Legendary time. Famous, famous stuff in the legendary tier, and you guys will probably agree with me that these things are worthy here. Uh, the only one is maybe Gelatinous Cube. AC of 6. 84 hit points like our Ogre Zombie. A lot of hit points, but AC of 6. Oh, it's immune to being blinded, charmed, deaf, and exhausted, frightened, prone. Anything, any attack that you had that has a special bonus? No. It takes up its entire space. Other creature can enter the space, but a creature that does so subjective to the, um, the cube's engulf action. And it's disadvantage on saving throws. Ouch. Ouch. Disadvantage on saving throws. Remember that, because there's a lot here. Creatures inside the cube can be seen, but have total cover. Creatures within five feet can take an action to pull a creature object out of the cube. Doing so requires a successful DC 13 strength check, and the creature making the attempt takes 10d6 acid damage. Not half. If they succeed or don't succeed, even if you try, you'll take 10 acids or 3d6. The cube can hold on to only one large creature or up to four medium or smaller creatures inside it at a time. Transparent, even when the cube is in plain sight, it takes a successful DC 15 wisdom save check to spot a cube that has neither moved nor attacked. A creature that tries to enter the cube's space while unaware is surprised by the cube. The cube can use pseudopod, melee weapon attack, a plus four. One creature hit for 10 acid. All right, that's pseudopod. Let's get into the golf ability, which makes this thing, I think, really, really good. So, other creatures can enter the space, but a creature that does so subjected to the engulf and has disadvantage on saving throws. So, engulf, the cube moves up to its speed of 15 feet, so not very fast. 
While doing so, it can enter large or smaller creature spaces. Whenever the cube enters a creature space, the creature must make a DC 12 dexterity saving throw. Oh, by the way, if you moved into its space because you did not know it was there, you are doing it with disadvantage. And DC 12 dexterity saving throw. On a successful save, the creature can choose to instead be pushed back five feet or to the side of the cube. A creature that chooses not to be pushed suffers the consequences of a failed saving throw. If you fail, what happens? The cube enters your space, and you will take 10 acid damage, and you are engulfed. The engulfed creature can't breathe, is restrained, and takes 21 or 66 acid damage at the start of each of the cube's turns. When the creature damages, when, when, the, cre when the cube moves, the engulfed creature goes with it. An engulfed creature can try to escape by taking an action to make a DC 12 strength check. On a success, the creature escapes and enters a space of its choice within 5 feet of the cube. So, the problem with this cube, you have disadvantage on your checks, pretty much, right? You have disadvantage on your saving throw, so you might fail that deck save and fall inside. If you fall inside, you enter and take 10 acid damage. If you, you cannot breathe, you are restrained, you'll take 21 acid damage at the start of each of your turn, each of the cube's turns. So if you don't make it out with your strength check and you have disadvantage and you cannot breathe, does it say restrained? Yep, you can't breathe and you are restrained. So, you are restrained, your speed becomes zero, attack rolls against you have advantage, and the creature's attack rolls have disadvantage. The creature has disadvantage on dexterity. Saving Rose. Oh. So now if a creature tries to pull you out, right? Because people can, doing so requires a successful DC 12 strength check. Even if another creature makes an attempt, skips their turn to try to pull you out, they're going to take 10 acid damage. If they fail, then they just took 10 acid damage. And with invite me to the cube, then the cube eats you. Mm -hmm. Yep. So the fact that it can continuously, on the start of its turn, keep dealing 21 acid to 66 if you're within the inside of it. And it's not like, oh, you've escaped, you don't get eaten for the next 24 hours. No, no, no. This cube can keep attacking and swallowing up your creatures. AC of 84, granted, or I'm sorry, AC of 6, hit points of 84, so it's probably sticking around for a few attacks. Especially if your attacks are only doing like 10 to 12 a turn. And if it eats you, you're basically taking damage. You start your turn, you take damage. Nothing about the cube is funny, actually. Uh, pseudopod is a, is a weapon attack, right? That's a, that's a weapon attack. But everything else is you just taking damage. There is no taking half here. You'll either take 3d6 if you get engulfed by the cube. Take 3d6 if you attempt to pull somebody out or an object out of the cube. And if you're inside and the cube gets a turn, you take 21. Let's say, heaven forbid, you cannot make it out of the cube and you are inside the cube for two turns. That is a guarantee, not a guarantee, but on, an on average of 42 acid damage if you're within inside the cube for two turns. That is going to kill and take out a lot of creatures. If this thing eats any of the dragons, except for Silver Dragon, and you're inside of it twice, on average, it just knocks it out, right? So this one creature 
can take out a bunch of things and it can engulf multiple things. And if the things don't leave, like it says, and they just, the cube starts its turn, everybody inside the cube will take 66 acid damage. Woo! That is a lot. I think, what is it, Black Dragon's probably okay, but that's one of like the. Yeah, Black Dragon is immune to acid, so a Black Dragon, I guess, could take it on. Not many other things in this early game are immune to acid, everybody. That is why it has a legendary creature. Gibbering Malther. This one probably has no... Uh, again, it's funny. Because now we've turned the tables for legendary creatures. Before they were about, what is, it has a high AC, so it's a legendary creature. Now it's a legendary creature. Gibbering Malther has only 9 AC. 67 hit points. But, again, this is another good character for the deaf NPC that plays with creatures that involve sound. Because um, the Malthorn babbles incoherently while it can see any creature and is not not incapacitated. Okay, first of all, start. The ground and 10-foot radius around the Malthorn is dough-like difficult terrain. Each creature that starts its turn must make a DC strength save or have a speed reduced to zero. So you can be stuck next to the Malthorn. Uh, Malthorn babbles while it can see any creature and is not incapacitated. Each creature that starts its turn within 20 feet. Well, if you're in the dough-like material and you fail, your speed becomes zero. So you're probably within 20 feet. And can hear the gibbering must succeed on a DC 10 wisdom saving throw. On a fail, the creature can't take reactions until the start of its next turn and rolls a D8 to determine what it does during its turn. On a 1 to 4, the creature does nothing. On a 5 or 6, the creature takes no action or bonus action and uses all of its movements to move in a random determined direction. On a 7 or 8, the creature makes a melee attack against a random determined creature within its reach or does nothing if it can't make such an attack. So 1 to 4, the creature does nothing. Five or six, the creature takes no actions or bonus actions and uses all of its movement to move in a randomly determined direction. On a seven or eight, it makes a melee attack against a random determined creature. Otherwise, it does nothing. So, if you fail that DC 10 wisdom check, and not many things, like we said, have the best wisdom, you're doing nothing. Your turn, or you're attacking a friend, or you're running away if you can, in a random direction. Oh, you're running away? Oh, that was a rogue opportunity attack. And fun fact, guys, that's not an action. The Jibber Mouther gets to do that effect for free if you start your turn within 20 feet and can hear it. It just makes you make a wisdom check. Otherwise, if you fail that of a 10, it'll do nothing. Now let's get into its actions it can do. It can make one bite attack and it can use its blind. And if it can, it uses its blinding spittle, which will get to the bite first. Plus two, not very strong, but one creature will take. 5d6 piercing. That's 17 damage. If the target's medium or smaller, it must succeed on a DC 10 strength saving throw or be knocked prone. If the target is killed, it is absorbed into the Malther. So you could be knocked prone by its bite attack. Only a plus 2 to hit. So that's the trade-off, right? They made its attack to hit not very high. But... Otherwise, it's making your creatures do nothing when it's not doing that. And now we'll get into its Blinding Spittle, which it says, and it can use its Blinding Spittle if it can and chooses to use it in addition to making a bite attack. So Blinding Spittle. The Malther spits a chemical glob at a point it can see within 15 feet of it. The glob explodes in a blinding flash of light on impact. Each creature within 5 feet of the flash must succeed on a DC 13 saving throw or be blinded until the end of the Malther's next turn. 
One more time, we'll go to conditions. What is blinded? A blinded creature can't see and automatically fails any ability checks that require sight. Attack rolls against the creature of advantage and the creature's attack rolls have disadvantage. So this thing is all, uh, this is like a perfect kind of mystic creature, right? This guy is great with AoE. You have a bunch of goblins swarming around you, summon your gibbering mouth or card, like play your gibbering mouth or card, summon him out, put in your earbuds so you don't get affected by it. And then this thing just calls, you'll see all the goblins all around you. Do either do nothing, attack their friends. Meanwhile, the mouth are just biting, attacking, devouring, and eating these goblins. Otherwise, it's spitting out a bomb, causing people to go blind. It's... You can see why this thing's a legendary compared to everything else we've seen. This thing literally shuts off enemies if they fail a wisdom check. And not many things have good wisdom. If you have a bad strength, you're stuck nearby it. Maybe you don't even hit it. This thing hits for 17 or 5d6 piercing damage with its only plus 2. But if it hits, it hits for that much too. And it knocks things prone if it makes a strength save. This thing's all about making enemies make saves, alright? <laughs> so, if you have something that makes enemies do bad against saves... Oh. Uh, Intellect Devourer, for those that don't know, this is like a little brain with legs. I'll show a picture of the um, gibbering mouth there for people. It's not the one I'm using, it's just the generic D&D picture, but if people want to see it, they can check out the video and see what the gibbering mouth looks like. There he is. That guy. Oh, he's so cool. I like him a lot. I think it's a really cool creature. It's, it's really strong. I've taken this thing and I've thrown at players and oof, Very strong. <laughs> Be careful of it. Don't underestimate it. It's, yeah, it has a low AC, but you're probably not doing much on your turns. Intellect Devourer. Uh, this thing scares a lot of people, I would say, for sure. Let me get Intellect Devourer here. There's a lot of legendaries, as you can see. There's like seven or eight of them already, and I think these things are the top, top things for this tier. Obviously, with... Intellect Devourer in the cube, dealing like 42 damage for free, no saves, no checks. As long as you're inside. I mean, don't get me wrong, like there's saves and checks to get you inside. But once you're inside and the ooze starts its turn. Alright, so Intellect Devourer, AC of 13, hit points of 36. Alright, what makes it so good? Resistance to bludgeon, piercing, and slashing for non-magical weapons. Alright, so I already got that good resistance. Immune to blinding, exhaustion, frightened, paralyzed, poison. Okay. A lot of good immunities. It can be paralyzed, can be poisoned, which we've seen a lot of creatures be high up on the list because it can do that. Special traits, mind sense. The intellect devourer is aware of the presence of creatures within 300 feet of it and has, that have an intelligence of three or higher. It knows the distance and directions of each creature regardless of physical barriers. Creatures under the effect of magic that protect the mind cannot be detected by the intellect devourer. Okay. Multi-attack. Makes one attack with his claws and uses consumed mind. Well, what is claws? Plus five to hit for an average of six damage or 1d6 plus three slashing. What is consumed mind? Well, consumed mind. The intellect devourer chooses one creature can see within 30 feet of it that has an intelligence of three or higher. A lot of things in this game have at least an intelligence of three or higher. The target must succeed on a DC 13 intelligence sailing throw or take 16 or 3d10 psychic damage. If the target fails the saving throw by five or more, his intelligence score is reduced immediately all the way down to zero. The target is incapacitated until it regains at least one point of intelligence, either from a long rest or from a lesser restoration spell. So it can hit with claws. It can use consume mind on a creature with intelligence of three or higher. If it hits a creature with three or higher, they make an intelligence save. Not many things have high intelligence. Wisdom and intelligence are usually like the two lowest stats for creatures, usually. 
I've noticed. Uh, so that's really bad. And a 13 is actually pretty good. It's up there. Otherwise, they take 3d10 psychic. If they fail by 5 or more, their intelligence score gets automatically reduced down to 0 no matter what it was. Gets it back in a long rest or lesser restoration. Oh, and also has the ability, but the action body snatcher. The intellect devourer chooses one incapacitated creature within five feet and engages it in a contest of intelligence. The intellect devourer overpowers the creature's mental defenses if it beats the target on a contested intelligence check. The intellect devourer magically consumes the creature's brains and teleports into its skull, taking full control of the target's body. While inside the creature's skull, the intellect devourer has total cover against attacks and other effects outside of the host. The intellect devourer retains its intelligence, wisdom, and charisma scores, as well as its comprehension of language, its telepathy, and its traits. Otherwise, it inherits the target's statistics, memories, and knowledge, including spells and languages. If the host drops to zero hit points, the intellect devourer must leave the host. It can also be magically forced from the body by means of a protection from evil and good spell. Huh. What has that? If I remember correctly, I think, I thought the priest had it. I guess the priest doesn't have it. That's all right. I thought the priest had it. That's fine. It doesn't. But anyway, if the host's devoured brain is restored only possible with a wish spell, the intellect devourer is forced out of the host. The intellect devourer can choose to leave the host at any time by spending five feet of its movement and then teleporting to an, teleporting to an unoccupied space within 15 feet of the target. Basically, it controls people. Yep, it reduces your speed to zero. You become incapacitated. It can hop in your brain, eat you, and control your brain. Uh, very strong. Very, very scary for players, obviously. It's like instant death. Oh, its movement is 40 feet of speed. So your 30 feet of speed is going to not compare to the little intellect devourer. It's here basically because not a lot of things have a lot of intelligence. So if you fail that save, you drop to zero, become incapacitated, it'll then try to eat your body and then control your creature. Yep, and then that creature will take other people's creatures and then it's just a mess. So that's why it's a legendary because it literally breaks the rules. Uh, we're going to keep going here. Orog. Um, this one I was very surprised by, uh, but it's up here. Because, remember, these things have to be better than a dragon to be up here. So far, we've seen the Delightus Cube dealing a free 21 damage every turn you're inside of it. And you take damage when you go in, when you try to, when you attempt to even pull somebody out. And it's got a lot of health. Gibbering Mouther cuts off actions from people. And like Devourer literally eats the brains out of people. And not a lot of things have good intelligence. So that's probably eating a lot of brains. Let's go into the Orog. AC of 18. Already better than the dragon, right? An AC of 18. Hit points of 42. So about a dragon's HP, but with more... Armor class. Aggressive. As a bonus action, the Orog moves up to its speed towards a hostile creature that it can see. So bonus action, it can run up, it can defeat something, move up, or it can just move up to 30 feet as a bonus action to just try to hit you. Two great axe attacks. Plus six for both of these attacks. And a 1d12 plus four or 10 slashing damage. It can javelin where it can use a melee or ranged weapon attack, which is a plus six to hit. With a reach of five or more, or range of target and hit for about seven piercing. So, AC of 18. It can attack twice with a plus six and hits for about 10 slashing damage each turn. So it's about 20 damage a turn. AC of 18. HP about the same as a dragon. That's why it's up there. Simply maybe, be, and we're back to the high AC, right? We haven't seen anything with an AC of 18. 
Now imagine if the cultists or the priests cast shield of faith on this thing? Huh. Well, you mean to tell me you have an AC of 20, good sir? Oh, yes, I do. Yeah, not the priest. Where's the, uh, the cult fanatic has shield of faith? That's surprising the priest doesn't have it, but... The cult fanatic has, yep, uh, shield of faith. Yep, and I can do that four times, by the way. It has first level spell, so I can do that four times. Oh, shield of faith concentration, actually? Maybe it can't. Let's see. That might be the one check. No. Oh, concentration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Da, 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 da. Okay, and it's a bonus action, so it can do something else that turn. Wow. All right. So obviously, if you call Fanatic and your team casts Shield of Faith on somebody else's Orog, they now have an AC of 20. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck trying to fight things with an AC of 20. That can also hit you for, on average, about 20 damage a turn. Yep. Oh, I can move out as a bonus action for my speed towards a hostile creature. So DM, you want to send me a bunch of goblins? Fine. I'll run up. Bam. 20. Bonus action. I'll run to the next one. Get ready to hit on my turn. And mm, I see a 20. Again, this is like the legendary like perfection of early game. Again, for power. I see a strength of 18. Con of 18. It gets bonuses to you. If you're playing a humanoid that gets humanoid buffs, it also gets buffs. Ugh. The amount of brokenness that's going to happen in this game. But I think players will have a really good time. So that's the Orog. Uh, sea Hag. I was surprised by this until I read it and I was like, oh, that's a legendary. Here's what Sea Hag does. Almost done. Got three left. Sea Hag, Were Rat, and Will-O-Wisp. Sea Rat. Or, <laughs> sea Hag. Sorry. AC of 14. Hit points of 52. All right. Horrific appearance. Any humanoid that starts its turn within 30 feet of the hag and can see the hag's true form must make a DC 11 wisdom, wisdom, keyword again, wisdom, saving throw. On a failed save, the creature is frightened for one minute. Creature complete the saving throw to break the effect with disadvantage if the hag is within line of sight. So disadvantage on trying to make a wisdom save where your wisdom buff is not already that good. A creature can repeat the saving throw at the end of each of its turns with disadvantage if the hag's within line of sight, ending the effect on itself. If a creature's saving throw is successful or the harmful effect ends for it, the creature is immune to the hag's appearance for 24 hours unless the target is surprised or the revelation of the hag's true form is sudden. The target can avert its eyes and avoid making the initial saving throw. Oh, yeah. So unless the hag's true form is surprising or, or, um, or it's sudden, you, as the enemy, or as the player that's looking at it, you can choose to avert your eyes and avoid making the initial saving throw. Until the start of your next turn, a creature that averts its eyes has disadvantage on attack rolls because you're not looking at her. So you're like, oh, where is she? As you're trying to like swing your sword at her and you're not able to get her. So, grants disadvantage, or you could just be frightened of me. Let's look at frightened again. Frightened creatures disadvantage on ability checks and attack rolls while the source of fear is within line of sight. A creature cannot willingly move closer to the source of fear. So you're stuck there. And that's just an ability, guys. That's just an ability. What are, what are, what are her actions? She can claw, death glare, or illusionary appearance. Her claw attack, plus five. One, I'll reach her five feet. Her target takes ten slashing. Pretty decent. Death glare. The hag targets one frightened creature she can see within 30 feet of her. Here's the, where the money is, right? Actually, I'm going to save Death Glare. Let's read Illusionary Appearance. 
Pat covers herself in anything she is wearing or carrying with a magical illusion that makes her look like an ugly creature of her general size and humanoid shape. The effect ends if the hag takes a bonus action to end it or if she dies. The change wrought by this effect failed to hold up to physical inspection. For example, the hag could appear to have no claws, but someone touches her hand and might feel the claws. Otherwise, a creature must take an action to visually inspect it and could succeed on a DC-16 illusion investigation check to discern that the hag is disguised. So, that's how she makes herself look like a horrible creature. When she does that, then everybody in the area, if it's sudden, or um, they can choose to look away, or if not, they have to make a DC-11 wisdom save. On a fail, you're frightened for one minute and you can keep trying to fix your save at the end. If your saving throw is successful, the effect ends, you're immune to it for 24 hours. But, let's say you are not successful, right? Let's say that you fail, because a lot of creatures don't have good wisdom. So let's say that you fail your save. Now we'll get back to Death Glare. As an action, the hag targets one frightened creature. She can see within 30, within 30 feet of her. So since you're frightened, you can't willingly move towards her. So you're probably going to be away from her. Targets one frightened creature she can see within 30 feet of her. If the target can see the hag, it must succeed on a DC 11 wisdom. Wisdom, again, being the key word, throw against this magic or drop to zero hit points. We'll let that set in. You could be an ogre zombie with 84 hit points. If you're scared of me and you're frying of me, there, make a DC 11 wisdom save. Oh, you failed? Okay. You dropped your hit points to zero. You're dead. So not the next one. Like, you see how strong that is? That is literally like an insta-kill. If people fail the wisdom saves, players or creatures alike. That's why this is a legendary creature, for sure. Right? Right. All right. And this is only CR2, guys. This is CR2. This is very early game creature just mad having death threat just to knock something down to zero hit points. Yep. All right, almost done. Where are we at? AC of 12, hit points of 33, so nothing spectacular in there. But the were-rat has a nice ability because it is a were-creature, a lycanthrop creature. Damage, immunities to bludging, piercing, and slashing from non-magical attacks not made with silvered weapons. Not resistance, immune. So your basic creature... I don't care if you have 18 AC, like the Great Axe of the Orog. You're not going to be able to hit me because I'm immune to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing from non-magical attacks not made with silver. That's just basic That's just basic stats. Shape change, it can polymorph into a rat-human hybrid or into a giant rat or back into its true form. Its stats, other than its size, are the same. Any equipment isn't transformed. It reverts to its original true form if it dies. All right, keen smell, advantage on checks of land smell. Okay, actions. What can it do besides being immune to, like, almost every early game form of damage that we've discussed? Whereat makes two attacks. Uh, one, with, one of which can be a bite if it's in the humanoid or hybrid form. Hybrid form, I'm going to assume it's in the hybrid form because then you could do all of these. So I would assume you'd summon it in the hybrid form. Anyway, bite. Plus four to reach. It's for four piercing. On average, if the target is human, it must succeed on DC 11 con saving throw or be cursed with were-rat lycanthropy. Or you'll slowly become a were-rat. Or it could have a short sword. Uh, plus four to hit. 
hits for five damage or 1d6 plus two piercing, or of a hand crossbow, which is a plus four to hit in a range of 30, 20, and one target hits for five damage on average or 1d6 plus two. So on average, it's only hitting for about five to four damage a turn, which is very small. But I know we talked about hitting for very little, but if you are immune to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing from non-magical attacks not made with silver, you are pretty much immune to a lot of the early stuff. Bears, lions, tigers, and bats, oh my. They will not be able to touch you because they don't have magic. They simply have piercing and bludgeoning. So you can eventually just wear out the clock and just deal damage to them and be immune. Yeah, granted, you only get a plus four on all of your attacks, but eventually they'll hit, right? Eventually the damage will get there. Against the Orog, eventually you'll beat it. I don't care if it has an AC of 20. Eventually you will beat it because it will be not able to touch you. Now as the player, the player could cast spells and try to shoot and kill the way rat. And this is a good example where having a few spells in your deck that deal damage could be pretty good because of situations like this with were rats. Try throwing three of these at the enemy players. They're not going to like that DM, but it'll teach them the value and importance that spells are pretty good. And here's why. Because your creatures might not be able to touch these were rats. So, last one, Will-O-Wisp. Will-O-Wisp, tiny undead chaotic evil, AC of 19, the highest AC of anything we have seen so far. You cast Shield of Faith, that's an AC of 21. Remember I said we get there, we got there eventually, right? Cult Fanatic, um, AC of 19 at baseline, hit points of 22. Oh, it's immune to lightning and poison dragons. Oh, and I resist acid, cold, fire, necrotic, thunder, bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing from non-magical attacks. So if you actually get to hit me, it's then resisted. I have only 22 hit points, but I have an AC of 19. So have fun trying to hit me. Oh yeah, and since I'm a little tiny ball of gas, tiny ball of undead, I guess because it's a will-o'-wisp, right? Oh, I'm immune to exhaustion, grappled, paralyzed, prone, restrained, and unconscious. So other things that made you good? Yeah, no, that's not happening. As a bonus action, though, now we're going to get into abilities. As a bonus action, consume life. The Will-O-Wisp can target one creature, can see within five feet, that has zero hit points and is still alive. Target must succeed on DC 10 con, saving throw against this magic or die. If the target dies, the Will-O-Wisp regains 10 hit points. 3d6. The Will-O-Wisp can't wear or carry anything. The Will-O-Wisp can move through other creatures and objects if they were difficult terrain. Will-O-Wisp sheds bright light, so it makes a glaze of light. It's, um, what, what damage can it do? It's actions. Shock, a melee spell attack, plus four to hit, hits for 2d8 lightning. Pretty good, hits for lightning, and it's a magic attack, so that hits the were-rat. Invisibility, the will-o'-wisp and its light magically become invisible until it attacks or it uses consume life or until the concentration ends as if concentrating on a spell. So it gets a surprise attack, it gets advantage for that plus four to hit for 2d8 lightning. And since it goes back to being invisible, you pretty much have disadvantage on trying to hit it. So you have disadvantage on trying to hit it. It has an AC of 19, and if you hit it with Acid Cold, Fire, Necrotic, Thunder, Bludgeoning, Piercing, and Slashing from non-magical attacks, that damage is half if you magically hit it at 19 AC. So you see why this thing is also a legendary creature. Whew. All right. 
We made it through, everybody. Thank you all for listening. As you see, I have been busy trying to organize things. I'll do a recap again here at the end of what do you guys think of the creatures so far? Do you think that they're laid out nicely? Should stuff get moved? Let me know your thoughts, too. Should I make it that abilities that damage and have effects for over 24 hours do it? How should I handle uh, Oromon's spell slots? Should I make players be in charge of remembering what spell slots for what creatures that they used and when? Or do I simply say, when that creature gets summoned, it regains all of its spell slots? Then things can continually use always their strong abilities every fight. But is that all right? Because everybody will have it. The enemy's creatures will have that as well. Something to think about, right? If the enemy has that ability to do that stuff, then is that fair and equal? Because that's just going to be like just the players. No. The enemies could have that effect as well, where anytime that they summon a creature, it could have its full slots back. Unless it's like a once per day. I mean, limit it to be like, all right, you know that you did that once per day already during this day of 24 hours. So, starting to lose my voice. So, I'm going to end here. Thank you everybody for watching. So, let me know down below what your thoughts are there. Do you like what's happening so far? Are you excited? I know I saw some people comment on YouTube. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that comment of like that the game's looking really good and that's exciting. I appreciate I read all the comments that you guys leave on things. So um, don't forget, if you want to help support the project, you can check out the Patreon link also down below. And if you're in certain tiers, I will give you actually printed nice cards, not paper cards. I will get actual printed cards of creatures sent to your house with a handwritten note and a signature from me on them. So you can start collecting cards early for when the game finally releases. And it can be of creatures that you want. So let me know ahead of time what you want. Or if you want Badgerang, one of the completed cards already, you can get that going too. Don't forget, you can check out the Patreon tiers for that. If you want to talk with us about the project and give me feedback on things, because I drop questions in the Discord a lot. Discord link is also down below to check out. So with that being said, thank you all for coming down. I know this was a lot longer, but there was a lot of creatures I had to go through because I've been busy. So with that being said, I will catch you guys all for the next one. If it's nighttime, have a good night for you. If it's daytime, have a good day for you. And with that, I will catch you guys all later. Bye.